Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1416 to 1429. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1416. A human and his unknown. Written by Admiral Starnight. The following document has been translated from the released personal letters of a deceased alien soldier to be included in the Light Made of War book, a documentary of all the strange things and clashes our culture made when we met, approved by the family for a niece. To protect the family, more mentions of names and personal details have been removed. Cannot believe it. The humans are strange beings to fight against. I know someone who reads this mail on the way home might balk, but I'm not surprised we're going to lose. They just don't follow logic or anything. One of the strangest things I learned is how they, uh, keep animals around. We use the herds and such for food, but that's it. Humans just seem to use everything. Like here's an example I never wrote to you guys about. When I was young and new to this, a backwater planetary, easy stuff for newer soldiers, one day while running behind enemy lines, hoping to lay down some traps or steal some supplies, my unit was near the edge of a camp. We could see patrols of humans on foot. One of the patrols consisted of a couple of humans and a four-legged furry creature on a leash. Considering the other foot patrols were four or five strong, this patrol seemed the weak point. We could slip in behind their backs along the woods. Even though the humans had been smart enough to brush back the undergrowth, they hadn't gotten all of it. So, as we circled around in the fading light of the sun of this planet, we watched for the perfect time, then moved into the camp. Given the darkness and how most humans were already sleeping due to their short day-night cycle, it was practically deserted. At least until the weak patrol spots us, guns up and shouting at us to drop our weapons, drawing the attention of the other guards and probably waking most of the camp. There were six of us and two humans and the furry creature. If five of us surrendered while the fastest of us ran, that soldier would run back to base and tell them about the capture and launch a mission to recover us. We chose the fastest one, Jowney, and when we laid down our weapons, he darted off, through two approaching guards who looked stunned by the sudden bolt, just like we hoped. Then the creature, if it hadn't been important, I would have never told you, but this creature, a dog, I believe, suddenly surges forward. The rope of the human had been holding detached from the fabric around its body. It goes chasing after Johnny, and I watched with fascination and horror as the dog launches itself up and slams into my fellow soldier, toppling him to the ground. It attached itself to Jowney's upper arm once it had twisted around, causing him to scream in pain. I honestly believe the creature would let go. You know how loud our screams can be. Very scary. But the creature, the dog, didn't budge. Just kept its maw sunk into the flesh until the handler came over, handcuffed Jowney, and called it off. At this point, I didn't expect it to listen. Too starved, or too wild with blood taste to listen. But the creature let go and sat down, growling, but no longer attacking. I was amazed. 
They had creatures for attack on command. The idea was foreign. A creature that would attack a larger, smarter being and listen to a handler. That's not all. You know, I was soon traded back, being so inexperienced I wasn't worth much in personal trade, but wasn't worth holding on to. So they gave me back to get some of their own soldiers. Next, we took some small city on a human planet. This one, a regularly snowy and cold planet that was honestly miserable. And to make sure that we didn't get murdered by the civilians, we went around searching every home for guns as best we could. If the humans let us in and were nice, we would look around nicely. When they refused, we'd beat down doors and subdue them. There was this one house. It was set out a bit from the city, but had a address in the city, so we went to check it over, given its location. It had suffered a little damage from the retreating troops, but it was occupied. When we knocked and explained, the human let us in and warned them of they had a cat, something about not liking strangers. The details are a bit puzzy, as I wasn't the one talking, just there to support. But leader had shrugged it off. A human wasn't terribly dangerous when unarmed. What harm could this uh, cat do? A lot, let me tell you. They had a small female child, and while we regretted to wake her, her room had to be searched. We follow the human in, who wakes the child sitting sleepily on the bed. There was this ball of fur, nearly as large as the young child next to it, who was making a strange noise, a low, moany noise that makes my muscles tense. Of course, the leader is suspicious that this is an active weapon, and despite the human trying to wave him off, reaches down and picks up the ball. Let's just say that Imkar, our leader, had a ton of medical treatment when he got back to headquarters. The ball of fur had turned out to be the cat, and that noise was apparently a warning noise, like the hiss of a red flash tree snake. The cat immediately turns and begins to claw at his arm, before lunging at Imkar's face. I've never seen anyone run out of a house so quickly. The cat chases, but stops at the door. It's fur so fluffed up, it looks like some furry demon. The human apologizes to one of us that had just frozen in shock, and we watch with horror as the little female wanders up and just hugs the cat. Amazingly, the cat just lashes its tail and turns to bump its head into a small human. After that display of aggression, I had expected it to eat the female alive. This probably sounds hilarious, and in hindsight they are kind of funny to me. I don't know about those who had gotten attacked. I heard another story later that week. A soldier had tried to take advantage of an unarmed human alone in a barn. He got kicked clear through a wooden barn wall by a livestock creature called a horse. The idiot deserved being hurt for trying to do that. Seriously, who does stuff like that? But the horse looked to be a sort of eating herd animal. It's not. It's for riding and pulling things. Why do that when you have technology? So, why tell you all of this? Well, this latest story is probably the best. We received reports that somewhere in the upper city, gunshots had been heard from an apartment. Now, being the occupiers, we couldn't allow that. So, we looked into the apartment. The humans there were a couple of human siblings who told us that they had no gun. We looked around anyways, and while we were looking, we heard a gunshot. 
We look around, and the humans are standing under guard, no guns in hand. Yet the sound had come from the room that we were all in. Then again, the gunshot sound, and we narrowed the sound down to a large boxy-like thing in the corner under the brightly colored blanket. Rubbing the blanket off, we were greeted by the sight of a black barred cage filled with colorful ropes and wood shapes. A bowl of dried fruit and a bowl of water on one side, and a gray bird thing sitting there, staring at us. Good morning, it said in an eerie human-like voice. Time to wake up. Of course, we demand to know what this is, and they say that it is an African gray parrot, a bird they keep as a pet. We ask what a pet is. It's owning an animal for fun, basically. They keep a talking bird around for fun. Seriously, I would be freaked if a bird flew up to me and started talking. Then the damn thing makes a gunshot noise again, and the humans shrug helplessly. Apparently the bird had learned the noise while they were watching a war movie. We considered taking the thing back to study, but after a moment rejected the idea, as someone would probably shoot it for making the gunshot noise. Humans are strange, keeping all these creatures around like this. The dog, I understand, it worked well when the human would not have, but the cat... The horse or the talking bird? No. Humans made no sense. Why anyone would want to put up with the trouble of keeping creatures like this around when better things existed is beyond me. They must cost a lot of money to maintain and keep. Why keep them when you could have a bigger home, more food, or higher status? Ugh, humans, strange beings. Hope the war is over soon. I don't want to see another pet for the rest of of my life. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1417. Story number one. The Gift of Victory. Written by a glass of whiskey. Time to conquer the humans. They almost as mighty as him. Solankians had gone before. His spies had told him that they had traveled to humans with a grand fleet, but curiously, not what happened to it. But he, emperor of mighty Arcanian people, would succeed in the place where the Solankians had possibly failed. Gathering his mighty fleet, he set course for human system Sol. As he entered the outmost planet, senses reported that no human fleet was approaching. Although some Solankian ships were detected, and a lot of others... Destroyed? No. Decommissioned. The barbaric humans had not only defeated them, but turned them into scraps truly a horror. When he contacted them, they were... Happy. To hear from his fleet. One look at his mighty fleet and they immediately capitulated, although they said they could only speak for the gas giants, as they had no control over the other parts of the system. As a welcome gift, they sent him some more antimatter fuel, anticipating that his journey must have been a long one. It was with a great delight he greeted this present and distributed it to his ships. The humans asked if there was anything he wanted to gift in return, as a form of sign of their new relationship. Impervious humans. But they could have some of his older ships. 
He had meant to use them for some active scouting after mines around the gash giant. But that seemed a bit superfluous at the moment. And anyways, they were a hassle. Great, the humans responded. Selankians did the same thing. Ah, of course the humans could not have won over the Selankian. They had bargained with them. The fools, they had probably got further into the system. The humans asked if he wanted some food or other supplies. Perhaps another exchange of gifts. But no, his focus was on the conquest of Sol. So he bid them goodbye and set course for the inner planets. Through the asteroid belt, it wasn't long until he was hailed by the other humans. He hadn't even been able to detect him hidden in the crevices. Hello, almighty emperor. We wish to surrender. There had been an awful lot of surrendering, but if the humans wanted to, who was he to stop them? Excellent, your grace. We wish to exchange gifts as a token of this. We can furbish you with extra armor for your ships and only ask for a token in return. This is rapidly turning into the easiest conquering yet. Once again, the humans gave him what he needed, and once again, he gave them some ships in return. They were his seekers, meant to find hidden installations in the asteroid belt, a task they were apparently incompetent at, and so unneeded anyway for the rest of the conquering. He noticed that the ships that were sent out to do the refurbishing shared a lot of their design with that of the Selankians, Clearly, the humans were resourceful if they managed to use so much of their fallen enemy's resources. Why hadn't they done anything against him? Ah, but never mind that. With these now fueled up and armored up ships, he continued on into the heart of human system. Mars and Earth. The two crown jewels. Again, he was hailed. Oh, mighty Emperor, unfortunately we've already been conquered by the Selankians. Would you like to wait? Wait? Conquered? Then why hadn't he seen or heard from them? Oh no, the humans wouldn't fool him so easily. Ha! Your trickery won't work on me. My senses might see Selankian ships, but I have seen many of their ships before in your service. They are clearly repurposed ships in human control. Now he had seen what the human had been going for. Too bad it was him. On some lesser beings it might have worked. Eh, if you say so, the human broke contact. Another transmission was incoming. What appeared to be the Selankians. But the human's trickery had come to an end. Time to finish this. Aboard the Selankian ships, the very real Selankians were mightily confused. After having conquered the humans without any resistance and some small exchange of gifts, the celebrations had been long and intoxicating. Now, what appeared to be an Arcanian ship, reinforced by what was clearly human armor, was approaching them and didn't respond to hails. Did the humans have an alliance with the Arcanians? More ships ready for battle. Finally, a fight and armor, as well as numerological superiority, it would be an easy one. Prophetic words. The Selankian ships responded sluggishly and were no match for him. 
His great armada made full speed for their positions where they were ripped to shreds. His conquest complete. Well done there. It was the incoming transmission from the humans. Our surrender is yours. Congratulations. He was not used to those he had defeated congratulating him, but he could certainly get used to it. I see you've lost some of your fleet, and other parts of it are badly damaged. Would you like us to repair it for you? Perhaps as a small token of gratitude, you could leave some ships behind? Of course. A third time the humans had been most helpful. A wonderful species to conquer, really. They fell over so easily once they realized the might of the invader. So his ships were repaired, and some of his ship was given to the humans. Only a small particles. Wouldn't want them to get any ideas in their head. And his losses had been few, so he felt quite generous. He supposed that was that. However, installing a new government was starting to prove annoying, as everywhere the humans tried to help him, but always against each other. Here again, the humans stepped in and fixed things up. Some key positions would be held by his personnel, and the rest would be filled out with humans. The general system could stay exactly the same. Wonderful. He was so happy that he didn't have to do the extra bureaucratic work that that entailed, that he almost kissed the human diplomat proposing it. A gaping maw full of teeth had unfortunately scared the poor sud away. Soon he grew bored. What do you actually do with the conquered species? They were so happy to help that he almost felt bad. Can't have a warlord feeling bad for his conquerors. So he gathered up his armada again, except for a small part that he had left to keep control over the humans, and left. He never got the answer to what happened to the Solankians. Those poor bastards couldn't even defeat a feeble and tiny humans. End of story. Story number two. Sweetheart, written by a glass of whiskey. Across the empty void, holes emerge, spewing forth long, slender ships. One bigger than all the others, USS Sunderer had arrived. In the front, on the top of the ship, was a human in a spacesuit. He bent over as to gather all his strength before exploding back up in a scream and through all the radio channels, a simple broadcast. Admiral, the humans have arrived. The Admiral was not a happy one. Her head fell into her claws. Why? Oh, why request help from the humans? They were as subtle as a supernova, and only occasionally less destructive. Time to synchronize for that joint stealth attack. Reconfigure the network to accept the human signatures and get me their admiral. They were going to attack their hated enemy, and the humans would help, mostly cause they were their biggest trade part. Unfortunately, their military strategies and outlooks could not be more different. Theirs was a dance, an elegant weave in and out of enemy territory, striking key points with focused strikes. The human strikes could only be said to be focused if your smallest possible target was a planet. That will the human transmission is incoming. Here goes nothing. Her first face to face with the human admiral. Hopefully, he would be more reasonable than the last one. The admiral was not on his bridge, and was at the 
space suit? Um, if you're preoccupied, we can recontact you later. What? Oh no, this is just how I prefer it. Motivates the crew, you see. Uh, don't let them hit the Admiral. The human chuckled to himself. Wait, uh, are you perhaps the human on top of the USS Sandra? Uh, the very same. Did you like that entrance? Oh, good. Another lunatic. Let's uh, just get this over with. She couldn't wait to get away from the humans and into battle. Our forces will attack the enemy stations around the gas giant and distracting the enemy fleet while the Oramada bombards the fortified planet. Already got the briefing, sweetheart. Don't worry about it. We brought a surprise. Perhaps it wasn't too late to back out of this uh, arrangement. No, her orders were absolute and she was loathed to admit it, but the humans had better ships for planetary bombardment than anything that she could bring up. Let's do this in uh, T5-men, over and out. Now, it was all in motion. All had been planned, an excruciating deal. Last-minute checks were made, and engines prepped for jump. All ships in the fleet prepare for jump on my command. Jump off into hyperspace, her ships beaming of all the colors from the exotic particle energetic interactions contrasted sharply to the human's dull blue. Both entered the system at high alert, straight into defensive positions. They had been expected, or rather predicted. It was good, although obvious plan to attack the main supply depot. She could see her fleet quickly spreading out, darting in and out of the fires, the shields glimmered by each strike from the enemy projectiles. Some ships exploded into a fiery red as their shields overloaded. Far more damage was being done to the stations as lasers beamed across their surface, glowing white hot from the heat. It was going well. Soon the main bulk of the enemy fleet would be all over them, but they be long gone by then. She dared a distraction to see what the humans were doing. They hadn't even begun their bombardment. What were they doing? Was this the special surprise, sitting by the sidelines? If their admiral was about to call her sweetheart, the very least they could do was take part in the battle. One strange thing was the USS Sandra that the screen had zoomed into. It had broken into many pieces and was now many times longer than it had been before. She was about to ask for a more detailed report, when a bright light filled the view. Had the human self-detonated the ship, this was just getting weirder and weirder. A moment later, another bright light. This time, it was the fortified planet that shined like a star. But the humans hadn't even fired a single laser. As the brightness diminished, the total devastation could be seen. USS Sundara was no more, but neither was the planet. Split into large chunks that started to orbit each other. It didn't matter how far down the fortifications had stretched. Even if they had reached to the very core, they couldn't have withstood that. Replaying it in slow motion revealed a small metal slug being shot out from the USS Sundara directly after the explosion at a decent fraction of the speed of light. Apparently, the whole ship was just two long extendable ratings to guide the projectiles, and one hell of a large shaped charge. Objectives had been achieved, damage to station and destruction of planet fortifications. She looked at it in a moment of awe, interrupted by a message from the human admiral. Lovely battle, must get going. 
Good luck with the war and uh, see you later, sweetheart. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1418. Story number one. Mayonnaise, written by Norad Naya Tust. Grok sat on his throne, made of the skulls of his past conquests. On a screen in the far end of the room lay the deaths of thousands of worlds. Grok nodded in satisfaction. The footage ended, then was replaced by footage of his next target. It was a small planet. It was orbited by a lone moon and composed of two-thirds water. Later, Grok muttered in the ship's AI, Give me all the data. At once, Grok almost fell off of his throne as the AI interpreted his request rather liberally. Why the hell did I need the entire history of this planet beamed into my brain? He yelled. There was no response. Slowly, he began to understand what he was processing. He smiled, showing two rows of jagged teeth. <laughs> Nothing but kittens, he laughed. The sound echoing across the room. This conquest shall be trivial. Suddenly, a klaxon sounded in the room. The AI had decided that a visitor was needed. In the center of the room, Grok watched as the two-legged creature materialized. It yawned as it dropped a can with blood printed on the side of it, and then scratched at the appendage at the rear of one of its limbs. Grok was incensed. I am Grok, the destroyer of worlds, subjugator of sour countless species. Identify yourself, interloper. His voice was loud enough to rattle bone. The human dressed in underwear and a stained dressing gown looked around, appearing confused. Um, he replied. Uh, I'm Dave. Damn, I may have drunk too much. Uh, what is this place? Dave's eyes, half-lidded, yawned, a piece of drool hanging from his mouth. He stuck his hands into his pockets. One hand re-emerged, holding a spoon. Weep, human! I am your conqueror! You beauty race does not... Do you not realize who you stand before? How impotinate! I should cut you down where you stand! What in the Ten Rings are you doing? Grok roared, the room shaking from the baritone of his voice. Dave appeared to ignore him, swaying from the effects of the empty can and from the movement of the floor. From his other pocket, he pulled out a jar. Uh, he muttered. Weird dream. Dave stumbled a few steps forward until he banged his shin on a table, though he did not react to the pain, then glanced around the room, taking in the bones adorning the walls. Weird. Human! Groke's fury was reaching new heights. A vein on his forehead bulged. Do you not realize the seriousness of the situation you're in? He jumped to his feet as he grabbed a sword that had been lying on top of the pile of skulls. Dave yawned and replied, I'm getting a snack, Gok. He proceeded to unscrew the lid of the jar, dip in the spoon, and lift out a portion of its contents. The contents jiggled, wet, and glistening with fat, as Dave lifted it to his mouth. Newman, what are you consuming? Woke, discombobulated at Dave's actions, took a step forward, 
and strained his eyes in order to read what was written on the side of the jar. Maru, Dave mumbled, then swallowed, coughed and tried again. Mayo! At this, Grok took a step away from the human. Grok realized, somewhere in the massive amount of data his AI had pulled, that there were hours of videos on how this mayo substance was made. His eyes widened from a mixture of shock and horror. Impossible! My data from your world indicates that mayonnaise should only be ingested as part of a healthy, managed diet. His sore arm was pointed towards Dave, but his grip on the weapon was slack, and his arm was unsteady. Suddenly, he was being flooded with images of mayonnaise factories and eating challenges. Dave rolled his eyes. It's 3am, Grok. You try and make a sandwich at this time. Dave, my name is Grok. Um, what's the sandwich? At once his mind was filled with images of sliced bread. This did not answer his question. Whatever, Groot. Grok shook his head in disbelief at the sadian. Dave, who rather than showing the customary fear, instead insisted on eating another tablespoon of mayonnaise. Such digestive power, Grok said. The sentence trailed off as Dave dipped the spoon into the jar, a third, then a fourth, and then a fifth time. Are all humans as strong as you, Dave? Dave shrugged. No, no, we got some interesting food. You should Google sustrumming. Despite Dave's inebriated state, his pronunciation of the Swedish word was rather inexplicably perfect. I had a pal that ate a packet of cinnamon once. Does that count? Grok's mouth fell open in shock. The mere mention of Sir Strumming had instantly pulled images of humans eating it into his mind. Incredible! Dave, I wish to visit your planet. Not as a conqueror, but as a friend. I have underestimated your species' ability to produce warriors as strong as yourself. Um, sure... I, I, I guess. Dave clutched his stomach. Cork! I'm gonna be sick. He glanced around the room, saw that there was no bin to be found amongst the skulls and general viscera, which left him with but one option. So he threw up, covering the nearby table in a mayonnaise-infused bath. Groke jumped backwards to save his clawed feet from the splash and put the claw on his face in exasperation. Dave! That table was forged using the heat of a dying sun. It is irreplaceable. Dave, still clutching his stomach, groaned. Oh, sorry, Grop. Uh, I think I've seen a similar one in Ikea. Grok raised an eyebrow. Then we must go at once. Which star system is this uh, Ikea in? It's 3 or 4 a.m., Gert. They're closed. At this, Grok screamed frustration and threw his sword so hard that it jammed itself into the nearest wall. I regret ever thinking of conquering your planet, you mayonnaise bastard feeds! End of story. Story number two. Iron Jailers, written by British Tea Company. If there was a hell, then it was Mount Ferrer where molten iron poured from its mouth. If there was a devil... It would be Varrock, molten iron pouring from his mouth. 
If there was such a thing as a hellstorm, it would be a barrage that would be headed for the mountain. Magic missiles caused by archmages who could level the walls of a city with but a few words. Alchemical brews that would be toxic to all forms of life. Amidst the arcane, there was the mundane arrows and bolts. Countless thousands of them flew at the mountain side by side. Ferok would be impossible to miss. He stood taller than the tallest castle, and the molten iron pouring from his mouth made him look like a mountain of fire in his own right. The barrage struck true. Arrows shattered against his iron slight scales. Enchantments and hexes exploded off of his hide, only to do so pitifully little. The force of God's hammer came crashing down upon the peak of Mount Pharaoh, and its master threw the devil's fury back. A stream of dragon's breath incinerated anything it touched in a heartbeat. Siege engines literally mounted in the wake of his wrath, and even the greatest of armors would be nothing more than paper to the torrent of fire and iron. The besiegers refused. More siege weapons rolled up to the front to shower the dragon with their weapons. Mages, some of who had spent several lifetimes on this forsaken battlefield, spoke the words that would mend their comrades and renew their fighting force. Again and again. God's hammer came crashing down upon the peak. Varak roared again, perhaps in genuine pain. But his retaliation once again wiped out entire contingents of attackers, their iron bodies melting instantly against his fury. Even in death, they would still serve. Wizards and sorcerers, long having left their mortal bodies, ran around as living armor, ornately decorated to distinguish them. They muttered incantations that would repair their brethren, and as the souls within calls the armor to flicker back to life. Another warrior could be added back into the throngs of the besiegers. This was how it went for decades, for centuries. When they first came here, the mission had been to slay Farrakh. Now it was clear that they could only hope to contain him, and contain him they would. Though not a single warrior had his original body lived to see the coming of old age, they were still alive after all these years of constantly dying and being reborn. In this hell of duty, every man found brotherhood. They found bonds forged in iron as eternal as their own souls. They were only human when they came here. The mortal army which Farrakh had laughed in draconic tongues had its chances of victory. Even now, they were still only human. Varric explained the line of defense that kept him in his mountain. Yes, they were only human. Only a human could have thought of the insanity to bring so much warriors to face against the most powerful being in the world. Only a human could have followed through with the idea of a siege. Only a human could have stepped up to agree to serve for eternity if need be against the greatest evil the world had ever seen. And only a human will fight, day after day, year after year, century after century, only to be knocked down again 
returning to life in a body that wasn't his, just to fight again in a battle he knows he could never hope to win. Only a human could do this. As Farrakh was done catching his breath, he glared down at his mountain. There were still hundreds of thousands of only humans still surrounding his mountain. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1419 Story number one, Spark, written by Uruen. The weather had turned bitterly cold. Arthide bundled up as warmly as she could, watched her human foster family scurry around the house with surreal sort of detachment. It wasn't that the humans hadn't been welcoming from the start, for they had done their best to consider her one of the family since the very first day that she had arrived. Three of their months ago. She wanted to reciprocate, but her heart wasn't in it. Nothing was the same anymore, and she wasn't ready to open up. It wasn't that the humans weren't being inclusive, for they encouraged her time and again to take part in any and all celebratory activities. The carving of the orange vegetables had been strange, when at the time being able to freely stab something had been somewhat uh, therapeutic. The tradition seemingly brought over from another country, a giant meal of giving thanks was less so. To see such bounty after having lived through what she had lived through, it was difficult. She wrapped herself tighter in her scarf, curling her long body up into the very corner of the soft piece of sitting furniture that they called a couch. The current holiday on the surface seemed distantly intriguing, but she simply couldn't bring herself to care. Any holiday in which people gave presents and saw joy for one another was, theoretically, something I'll thrive enjoyed. Oh would have enjoyed. She should be taking part, having fun, but she couldn't muster the energy to do so. It would all be fine, if not for... She shook her head, trying to ward off the rush of memories. She had a foster family now, and she had to learn to live with it. All day, she sat there on the couch, burrowing deeper and deeper into the mound of blankets that was fast becoming her world. Today was a day of celebration, and her foster family was doing what seemed to be a traditional for them. The singing of songs, the eating of food, the gathering of families. If Arthripe were to be honest, so far it felt like nothing more than more musical version of a giant meal of giving thanks. But there was clearly something special on the horizon. The human child, Belinda, kept sneaking up to her mound of fabric on the couch, speaking with hushed tones of a forbidden room and the desire to enter it, and that they had to wait for the sound of a bell before doing so. A thribe understood absolutely none of it, and wanted to vocally dismiss the whole scenario as artificial and unwanted, but something in Belinda's sparkling eyes caused her to hold her tongues. Crushing someone else's childhood does not restore her own. As the day wore on, Belinda seemed to become more and more agitated. Despite herself, Arthribe slowly grew intrigued, 
How would this impending situation possibly top the human child's uninhibited joy of going door to door and demanding sweets from others? Evening fell, and our thrive's curiosity continued to grow. By this point, Belinda was almost visibly vibrating with anticipation, and it was quite difficult to concentrate on anything other than the small human's overpowering excitement. Just as she was about to uncoil herself from her snug blanket nest and brave the cold room in search for some sort of answers, she heard a sound. A gentle, tinkling noise coming from another place in the house. Belinda squealed in delight and all but forcibly dragged her foster sister out of a spot at the couch. Together, Belinda running in enthusiasm and Othride merely following out of confused curiosity, they reached the closed door behind which the little bell had rung. There was a slight crackling sound in the air, and Belinda opened the door to reveal a, a flash from a warringly dry cloudstorm. The smell of smoke, treetop fire, her home ablaze, a strange tree with leaves that looked like needles decorated with have to leave no time jumping down so far down away from the fires, jumping to, to danger. Shiny and colorful baubles, long strands of things that she had learned were called garlands and predators. Omen, oh, oh, don't, don't, don't leave me. Uh, uh, please, please come back. On every branch, there seemed to be a waxlight, a candle. And where there was not a candle, there was so much fire, so, so many inches open. Oh, mama, where are you? Something had crackled and spat little scintillating stars, reflecting in the rounded baubles and making everything look so tired, so hungry. Where is everyone else? Colorful and wild and... and... Northright breathed deeply, staring at the tiny fire sparks. She was with her foster family. She was safe. The room smelled like smoke, yes, but also of greenery, of life. It was a scent entirely unlike the one that haunted her. And as she smelled the strange mixture of explosion fire and needle tree, she found that it might actually be somewhat pleasant. The upright gray sticks were still giving off their tiny firelights, and Othribe watched as every little star spark seemed reflecting in the depths of the colorful rounded tree baubles. Each sphere was its own little parallel world, and each was full of little fairy fires, and all were hanging from the branches of the needle tree. Madly entranced, she sank into a puddle of coils on the floor, watching the reflected infinity with wide eyes. Hathribe, had no idea that fire, pain, loss, fear could still manage to be so beautiful. The spark-giving sticks, one by one, splattered into finished silence, until all that was left were the candles. The larger glow, Arthright found, was also beautiful, as it flickered and swayed simultaneously on all the baubles. Infinite worlds in an infinite dance of flame and wolf and... and life. It had been so long since life felt so beautiful, and Othrite fell headfirst into the feeling and gave herself over to it. Time seemed to stand still, weaving and dodging the candlelight as though it was its dance partner. 
She was startled out of a reverie when Belinda placed a box wrapped in bright paper onto one of the coils. The name on the tag was hers, and Arthipe was stunned to see that it was written, however haltingly, in a native alphabet. For the first time in months, Arthipe found herself wanting to smile. She was not whole again yet, not by a long shot, but perhaps the first steps in healing had finally begun to take root. Pulling Belinda down beside her for warmth and smiling just a little more at the way her foster sister giggled at the action, Athibe opened her present, all the while knowing that the greatest gift she had been given that day could never have fit in a box in the first place. End of story. Story number two. Spiders of Terror. Written by Belgain Rockfan. Daddy, can I ask you something else about terror? Many times, my son. What is it? Well, I've been thinking about the wasps. If they are so scary and dangerous, why haven't they taken over terror? That's because they've been told in check by both humans and by something they call... <laughs> spiders. What are spiders, Dad? Spiders are eight-legged, eight-eyed, carnivorous nightmares of every insect that lives on terror. That includes other spiders, by the way. Some are small as a tip of your smallest digit, and some grow bigger than your face. Most spiders hunt other insects by weaving sticky webs in or between trees, on passageways, or wherever they please, including in humans' homes. The threads of their webs are so thin they might as well be invisible. But they are made of a material so strong it was five times as strong as the materials the humans used to build the great skyscrapers. When an insect flies into the spider's web, it gets tangled in the sticky threads. The more it struggles to get out, the more stuck it gets. When its prey is tired, the spider walks over its own web and injects its victim with paralyzing poison, which also liquefies the trap bug's organs. It then wraps its victim tight in a cocoon in the same stuff their web is made from to store it and later suck out its insides. Remember how I said most spiders use webs to hunt? Well, there are a few who hunt in different, scarier ways. They bury themselves in the ground or cover themselves with leaves. When a prey walks by, BAM! The spider flies out in the hiding space and grabs it before poisoning it. Then it retracts and waits for the victim to die. When the poor thing finally succumbs to the poison, the spider drags it away to its hiding place, where it can devour it in peace. Some of these spiders even got enough deadly venom to kill or severely harm a human if it is not treated immediately. But you know what's really scary? Yet a lot of humans willingly allow them to live in their homes because they kill all the other annoying bugs. Can you imagine what kind of terrors crawl around on their planet if they allow these spiders in? Their homes. Uh, Dad, uh, is that why they called their planet Terra? Because it sounds so much like Terra. I don't know, son. 
but I'll be sure to ask it to the next human I see. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1420. Story number one. Children of Armageddon. Written by Guncaster. And it all started with an ice age. The one that ended some 10,000 years ago. His children, the Homo sapiens, had strayed too far from Yahweh's world. We knew it would happen. He promised free will to the reptilians as well. Yet he wiped their civilization off the face of the earth like so much dust. And so we froze the planet. Small interventions in bright places and the law of cause of effect did the rest. The apes soon went hungry and began dying off. Those that didn't starve freezing to death. The cooling, however, took longer near the equator. And so some had enough time to prepare to figure out that they could venture from their fires if they wore enough animal pelts. And so, through the permafrost, their hunters stalked, pursued, and slaughtered Yahweh's creations, built homes of their mangled bodies, carved yet greater tools of murder of their desecrated bones and ivory, clothed themselves in mockeries of their mammoth's visage. Yahweh wasn't angry. He was furious. He demanded we send down the horsemen of the apocalypse. Vermin, war, pestilence, and death. And so we did. We choked as clouds and dried out the rivers, rendered the soil barren and resources scarce. We forced the planet into a temporary ice age every single year. For what little remained, they warred amongst themselves, curled their population, learned, created new tools of war, new defenses, built greater fortresses and greater cities. From the grime and filth of war arose plagues, a myriad of diseases far beyond the worst ever meant for the beautiful Earth. Some they adapted. Their natural resilience proved greater than the more common of our plagues, but others destroyed their civilizations. So terror into the hearts of men and fear, they turned to fire once more. They burned their dead, isolated the sick. They raised themselves to the brink of death and rose from the ashes and in death, the planet itself turned on them. The earth quaked mountains, spewed forth poisonous smoke and searing lava. And hurricanes tore down their creations. After a millennia upon millennia, the last human on earth was no more. For they had stripped the planet bare and spat in the face of Yahweh as their immortal bodies of steel polymer, an unholy synthetic flesh. They had destroyed his creation and enslaved it with chains of industry and logic. In their arrogance, they built titanic machines with stars in their hearts and fled to the cosmos, corrupting lesser species along the way. What punishment could await them? Armageddon. End of story. Story number two. The Downfall of the Ricks. Written by Runner One. For hundreds of thousands of generations, the Ricks ruled the galaxy. 
Their origin was long forgotten. Some said that they had been born out of the fires of the very sun that now formed the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Whatever the true origin was, it was long lost to the sands of time. Over the last few million years, their empire had spread to nearly every inhabitable world in the galaxy. As their population had grown, they had searched for more and more remote worlds to inhabit. It did not matter to them if there was a ready sapient life on the planet. If it was suitable for colonization, the indigenous people were conquered and subjugated as slaves. If a world fought too hard for its survival, then the Ricks would simply eradicate all life from orbit, then move in and make the world their own. But something had gone wrong a few years ago. The Ricks began to lose contact with some of the most remote worlds. Ships were dispatched to see what had happened. Each and every ship had returned with the same story. They were dead. All of them. Each and every world that had lost contact had been wiped out. Everyone was dead of some unknown illness. At first, the Ricks believed that something had come home with the returning ships as their crews began to also die. But soon, it became apparent that this was not the case. Messages started arriving that almost every planet in the Ricks' empire was dead or dying. Their top scientists and doctors worked tirelessly, but no one could identify the origin of the virus that was killing them. It seemed as though every Rix on every planet in the galaxy was infected with the virus. Even worlds that had not been visited by other Rix in the last hundreds of years reported outbreaks of the same symptoms before going silent. Soon, there was only one Rix world that had still had life in a medical facility. In one of the largest cities, the last remaining experts worked to avoid the seemingly inevitable. The Rick's doctor looked in the mirror. The telltale sign was impossible to miss. On his upper mouth orifice, a large boil had formed. In a day or so, it would rupture and begin to drain pus. Death would be inevitable within a few hours more. The doctor lowered himself into a chair and held his head in his hands. I have failed, he muttered under his breath. Doctor Intabas, yelled the young intern. I have it. I know what is killing everyone. The older doctor lifted his head from his hands. You've said that before. But this time I'm sure it's a human disease. Human? What is that? They are, or rather were a race that inhabited a world orbiting a yellow star in a very remote arm of the galaxy. The Ricks invaded the world about a, a thousand years ago. Instead of surrendering to a superior force, they put up a hopeless fight. Command eventually made the decision just to wipe them out instead of conquering them. They were eliminated, and the world was colonized. What makes you so sure that you have the correct source? I've matched the symptoms, and then the virus itself, to one of their own medical databases. The humans called this herpes. Everyone. Those that the knowledge of any conquered race is saved for the benefit of the Rex Empire, replied the doctor. How did you make this match when everyone else failed? Well, Dr. Intibus, their planet Earth, as they called it, was conquered so long ago, no one thought to look that far back in history for the source of the disease. 
So, uh, what is the cure? I'm afraid there is no cure. Then you have the wrong disease, or it would have wiped out the humans. No, sir. It was not fatal to them. Over half of their population lived the virus dormant in their bodies their whole life. Dormant? Yes, sir. The virus lies dormant along nerve pathways until some unknown influence triggers it. Nerve pathways? Moerics have nerve receptors in the skin on our hands that we touch with other ricks to communicate silently. That is why everyone is infected, sir. Every time one of us has communicated silently with another ricks, we passed on the dormant virus. That is... insidious. That's correct, Dr. Intervus. And, based on my analysis of the virus, it has been spreading throughout the galaxy for at least a thousand years. But that's not at all. I examined the virus at a genetic level. This virus has been modified somehow. It looks like the humans managed to modify the telomeres to greatly extend the dormant period. It is my opinion that the humans somehow learned that we have no resistance to this virus and modified it as a time-delayed genetic bomb. All they had to do was infect a single Rix with it. And wait. But they are all dead. They are all died a thousand years ago. What would be the benefit? The intern thought for a moment before speaking. Perhaps revenge? As the intern spoke, the older doctor noticed that he too had a large boil developing near his mouth orifice. My god! We are doomed as a race, as soon as we set foot on that world. Halfway across the galaxy on a blue-green world, orbiting a yellow sun, rubble and desert scrub brush concealed the former mouth of a long-forgotten cave that had been blasted shut a thousand years earlier. Deep under this rubble, inside the cave once known as Colesbad Cavern, an atomic battery still glowed with warmth. A nearby timer was counting down. At that moment, the timer reached zero. A relay clicked deep within a nearby electrical cabinet. Long, disused lights began to flicker on in the darkness. As the darkness of the cave was bathed in light, row after row of cryogenic pods could be seen lining the wall all the way around the giant room. The first cryogenic pod to the right of the cabinet was labeled 1. The last one on the left was labeled 1,000. Equipment began to hum to life. Suddenly, there was a hiss, and with a metallic clang, the cover of the first cryogenic pod swung open. The eyes of a young man sleeping inside flooded open, and began to stir from his long sleep. End of Part 1 Story Number 3 The Downfall of the Ricks Part 2 The Humans Are Honored for as long as anyone could remember, every race in the galaxy had feared the Rex. Everyone in the galaxy lived with the knowledge that at any moment a Rex battle fleet could appear in orbit around your world. When that happened, your life was over. If you were lucky, you would become slaves to the Rex. If you were unlucky, every sapient being on the planet would be eradicated and replaced with Rex. And there was nothing anyone in the galaxy could do about it. When your world was chosen for colonization by the Ricks, the only thing you could do was run. If you were lucky, you and a few others from your world may live out your life on some friendly world that the Ricks had not yet colonized. 
No one knew how many races that the Ricks had eradicated over the millenniums, but they occupied hundreds of thousands of worlds around the galaxy. In the blink of a galactic eye, all that had changed. The Ricks were dead, killed by some unknown virus that swept through their civilization like wind from the gods. When word began to spread across the cosmos that the Ricks were really gone, the whole galaxy breathed a collective sigh of relief. Across the galaxy, everyone wondered, was it really the wrath of the gods, or had someone managed to do this? For years, everyone avoided the dead Rick's worlds out of fear that whatever killed them would prove to be just as deadly to other species. It was more than a decade before word began to spread that some outlaws had been using some of the dead Rick's worlds as hiding places, and had not been infected. It was the Akunans that finally got up the courage to actually land on the Rick's homeworld. They were determined to discover the real source of the plagues that wiped out the Rick's. Dr. Jutsu sat in front of a Rick's computer console examining Rick's medical records. His head hurt from deciphering the Rick's language. It had taken weeks, but he and his team was closing in on the truth. Dr. Jutsu, I have it, yelled his assistant from the next room. Dr. Jutsu was so deep in thought that he visibly jumped, turning over a beverage cup sitting next to the computer keyboard. Tolva, I've told you not to scream like that. As Dr. Jertsu finished his chastisement, the assistant came running into the room carrying a data pad. Sorry, doctor, but I was so excited that I couldn't help myself. I found the answer in the words of the Rick's doctor himself. The young assistant handed a data pad to Dr. Jertsu. See right here. It's the personal diary of a doctor in Tarbus, apparently written shortly before his death. According to his diary, he discovered that the disease was a genetically engineered virus. It was apparently created on a world that the Ricks colonized more than a thousand years ago. It was designed to lay dormant for nearly a thousand years before activating. They gave plenty of opportunity to spread throughout the entire Ricks empire. By the time it finally activated, every Ricks in the galaxy was infected. But in a thousand years, there have been plenty of contact between the Ricks and other races. Even the Okanen, he said the doctor. Why aren't we infected too? Why aren't we dead? Based on the early symptoms recorded by the Rick's doctors, I believe we are infected, replied the assistant. We are, replied the doctor. Yes, we call it mouth silt. Mouth silt? Are you sure? Reasonably, sir. It appeared in almost every race in the galaxy a few years ago, around the time the Rick started dying off. Until now, its origin has been a mystery. But mouth silt is a relatively benign disease. Other than some oozing souls that go away after a few days, most races experience no long-term ill effects. Yes, replied the assistant, and the Rick's doctor that recorded this believed that most of the individuals of the race that modified it also carried it most of their lives with no ill effects. I believe that this applies to most beings across the galaxy. If I am correct that this is mouth salt, and I believe I am, we too carry it now as a minor annoyance. The Ricks, however, they had absolutely no resistance to the virus. Once it activated, their fate was sealed. Insidious, whispered the doctor under his breath as he handed the data pad back to his assistant. What was the race that we owe our everlasting gratitude called? The assistant touched the screen of the data pad. Human, doctor. They were called humans, and their planet was called Earth. And get this, doctor. They did not even have interstellar capability. 
They couldn't even leave their own star system, yet they managed to wipe out the ricks in every corner of the galaxy. Yes, Doctor, replied the assistant, and since they couldn't leave their own own system, that means that none of them escaped. They all died a thousand years ago. The Doctor bowed his head. I would have liked to have thanked them. I wish they could have known what a service they did for the rest of the galaxy. Word of Dr. Jutsu's discovery quickly spread across the galaxy. It was the humans that had rid the galaxy of the hated ricks. Some more research by good Dr. Jutsu had even found an image of these long-dead humans. In a few years, there wasn't a capital city on a single planet in the galaxy that didn't have a gigantic statue of a human occupying a prominent spot in a public area. Most of them had some version of a plaque that greatly honored the long-lost humans who had rid the galaxy of the ricks. But despite ongoing years of research, no one had been able to identify the human homeworld, Earth. As millions of beings across the galaxy paid homage to these long-lost saviors of the galaxy, no one knew where they came from. As the years passed... The story of humans who had destroyed the ricks was told and retold in every form of public media on every world. The story of the savior humans had even eventually become bedtime stories told to children. In time, as stories do, the story of humans grew to an almost mythic status. As the stories grew, so did the perception of the humans. They even became revered on many worlds, almost on the level of gods. What no one in the galaxy knew was that a thousand humans had survived. For a thousand years, these 500 couples had been laying asleep in cryogenic pods deep underground in what was once New Mexico. While the rest of the galaxy was memorializing the human race, these 1,000 had been restarting human civilization. They were deciphering the left-behind Rick's technology. They were also doing what couples do. In no short order, these 1,000 grew to two. And then three. In less than 100 years, Earth's population quadrupled. Even though they were the best and brightest and had access to dozens of Rick's ships, the human race stayed on Earthbound for over a hundred years. But eventually, the temptation was too great. A Rick's starship had been refurbished, a small crew was formed, and over 1,100 years after the Rick's had invaded, humans left the Earth for the stars. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1421 Story number one. Autonomous Processing, written by Effervale. Emma sat still looking at the map and the table littered with schematics. She started making a humming noise that attracted a few of the crew into the control. When they saw her sitting there, they knew they had to be quiet. It was one of the first things that they were told when they were high. She closed her eyes and started tapping her fingers on the metallic surface of the table. Then she stood up suddenly. Ah! She exclaimed with a smile. The captain sighed in relief and let go of his grip on the control panel. Emma stood up and ran towards the board next to the captain, pressing a few buttons quickly before taking command of the control wheel in the middle. A loud metallic clunk could be heard all over the ship as the damaged engine and a few other parts detached from the craft. Suddenly, the ship started to accelerate in an askew direction and began to slow turn and spin, making many of the crew members dizzy. 
Some of the newer members were nervous and scared, but the veterans smiled as they held on to whatever they could. They were calm because they had seen this happen before, remembering that Emma could save them from impossible circumstances. She was a trump card they held, and although her salary was expensive, she was worth every galactic coin. The ship picked up more and more speed, slowly closing up on the space barrier, the acceleration rate needed before a ship could produce a jump. The lights within the cabin turned red, and the AI in the control of the ship's systems was begging Emma to stop. A few of the newer recruits started breaking out, praying to their gods or entering whatever the mode of hysteria was for their particular species. Emma stayed focused on screens in front of her. She clicked buttons and pulled levers without looking at the control panel. Loud sliding noises filled the ship as the whole wing was detached, leaving only the thrust engines with no way to control the vessel in tight maneuvers. Suddenly, the primary weapon systems went online, and Emma started using the recoil to add more acceleration, and as a rudimentary way to control the direction of the ship. They reached critical acceleration and broke the barrier. The jump was sudden, and those who were not holding onto something fell on the ground. Their destination planet was in sight and Emma sent out a signal requesting help from a nearby space station. She raised her eyebrows and took a big breath and smiled. Nice, she said, breaking the silence. Hassid noticed that Emma would do this whenever she completed a task. He wondered if this was something that humans would do, although he had only met a few in his lifetime because of their sadness and rarity. Humanity was the only species with what the Hellrelians called autonomous processing. Addis had learned about them growing up. Humanity was the youngest species that had reached the stars, beating the second youngest species by almost 43,000 Zeta cycles, or a billion human years. And even though there had only been a species for a couple of thousand human years, they had already technologically surpassed many of the older races without any help or interference. Many larger ships employed a human if they could afford it, and even though human slavery was illegal, some of the more depraved species still attempted it. Although it almost always resulted in the human escaping, even if they acquired it as a child. Emma was still a teenager and was only available a couple of the months a year, so all the dangerous missions were done at that time. But it was the only way their company could afford a human. They knew that once she graduated from human university, a much more significant corporation would offer much more. Humans initially only lived up to 100 years on their home planet. For a sentient species, to live for such a short amount of time was unheard of. But it gave them the ability to learn incredibly fast. In four years, they could absorb what the Herillion took a hundred or more years to learn. Not only that, they merely knew things without understanding how. At first, others thought that the humans were hiding something from them. Humans were able to complete extremely complicated calculations in seconds. If you placed them in a room, they could tell you who was a doctor, who was a criminal, and who was hungry or full by glancing at them. And in any physical activity, they could calculate where things would land and how to move their body for specific things to happen. Apparently, humans called this ability instinct, 
It was the result of having to calculate things to survive as they were evolving. Although Herillian scientists gave it a more proper name of autonomous processing. Although humans had artificially extended their lifespan to a thousand years, they still held the extreme cognitive abilities passed down from their ancestors. When this was discovered, every species of the universe tried employing human scientists to solve the most complicated problems, and any crew that held a human would always reach the other side, regardless of the monetary incentive. Many humans stayed in human solar systems and clusters because they found the jobs boring. Emma said she took the job to pay for university and because she was saving up for a ship to become an explorer. The first reason always confused any species whenever she said it, because humanity was the only race that did not have free schooling. But whenever anyone spent a week with her on board, they understood the second reason. Because if a human wanted to do something, they were excellent at it. End of story. Story number two. Terran Infantry, written by British Tea Company. Addressed from Supreme Commander Lavtal to his officers. I cannot stress this enough. I couldn't stress this enough, whether it is to the High Council's deaf ears or the Chancellor. It is just an excellent thing that the Terran Republic has decided that this end of the galaxy isn't worth their attention, save for the occasional mercenary activity that freelance soldiers are doing. And that's with just the Terrans themselves, from the lowliest meat shield to the highest commander. Terrans refer to the lowest caste of their army as the E-caste. From E1 to E9, the lowest of the low are colloquially referred to as rookies or greenhorns. The more experienced Terran soldiers jokingly refer to the new recruits as Tatars, slang for tactical ablative armor. Well, the reoccurring and perhaps somewhat irritating inside joke amongst Terrans, any other race that has gone to war with them will know that this is in truth very literal. Terran infantry run at their enemies like they have nothing to fear, which is quite true. Just try to imagine a 500 pounds of steel and fury coming your way, shrugging off most small arms weapons like they're nothing. The amount of kinetic rounds it takes to stop a charging Terran is the same amount of rounds they need to kill an entire squad of your men. Many people would like to point out that no armor is good enough to protect against energized melee weapons. Let me ask you an appeal to your common sense. Do you want to be within six foot radius of a six foot tall, 225 pound semi-carnivorous creature that can tear heads off? Do you? Good. You shouldn't. I've seen too many times, too many times, when single soldiers attempted melee combat against Terran soldier. This commonly ends with the Terran having a new scar to show off to his friends. Yes, for reasons beyond me, they think ugly fresh wounds are badges of honor. And the soldier in question having to be buried in a soup can. Don't even get me started on the special forces, by the way. Old Maker forbid that you find yourself facing charging berserkers that can tear off doors on a ship. Terran officers are far worse than infantry, referred to as the O-Class, from O-1 to O-12. Let me tell you something. You can tell how high a Terran is on the cost by how well decorated his uniform is. 
The more well-decorated it is, the better warrior and leader they are. If you ever happen to see a Terran with a bunch of shiny trinkets on his chest, you better run. If you ever see a Terran with gilded armor, it's probably already too late. Most officers tend to be older, but don't let that. Terran lifespans may be somewhat short, but they are the only race in the galaxy that permits gene modification. Many Terrans that are meant to be in retirement homes are still fit for frontline service, while others may have decided to be more uh, <laughs> creative in their modifications. I'd rather spare you all the details, but perhaps the most disturbing thing about fighting Terrans is what they do with the dead. I was serving a few decades back, and uh, I still would rather not talk about it. Dead bodies, their bones cracked up, their flesh torn off. Yes, the Terrans ate their enemies. They may have the decency to remain polite in table of dialogue, but mark my words, once this war starts, once the Terran Republic becomes irritated enough, old Maker forbid it leads to this. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1422 Xenobiology Homework Written by Poseidon underscore 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 Alright everyone, that concludes our first couple days of Xenobiology 101. For homework, please read chapter 3 of your textbook, as we will be covering the material over the course of the next week. I strongly suggest that you all read it, as it will greatly improve your comprehension. See you all on Monday. Fuck! Well, Merlis Jacob had the weekend to read the chapter. Hopefully, it will be short. At least, he didn't buy it for 300 credits, only to not use it. The rest of the class all got up from their seats with him and crowded through the tiny door into the lecture hall. A couple of the weird people, some lizards, a bunch of those furry guys. He hoped that they weren't as weird as humans of the same group. So far, so good. As he was walking to his dorm, Jacob reflected on his xenobiology class. For a class he picked by closing his eyes and jamming his finger at the list of classes to fill the science requirement, it wasn't too bad. So far it had only been the syllabus, thank God the teacher went over it in class, a calendar for the semester, and a list of topics that they would be covering. Walking into his dorm, Jacob decided just to get the reading out of the way. He didn't have any plans and he wanted to explore the campus. He'd be there for a while and having the whole weekend to discover stuff would be better than cutting it short for reading. Sighing, he put down his bag, took out his xenobiology textbook, sat down on his bunk, and began reading. Chapter 3. Convergence of Evolution So far, we have covered the origin of organic molecules and evolution in broad terms. In this chapter, we will focus on a phenomenon coined by the humans before their first contact. Convergent Evolution 3.1 Origin of the Theory While many biologists from many species have noted this is one example or another on their respective planets, Earth seems uniquely suited to convergent evolution. Of course, this phenomenon is widely present in the galaxy as a whole, but rarely on individual planets. While there are a number of hypotheses as to why Earth has a much higher rate the most widely accepted one proposed simple charts 
as the reason. Regardless of the cause for convergent evolution, anyone can determine its importance by looking at the races of the galaxy. There are numerous traits that all share in common, regardless of planet of origin. Before humans were inducted into the Galactic Republic, there was a quiet debate as to how species from different planets could evolve similar features. However, when the first human delegate to Xenobiology Affairs arrived, they immediately explained their concept of convergent evolution. Simply, the convergent evolution theory states that populations of organisms under similar environmental pressures can develop analogous features. For example, the sharks of Earth were once widely believed to be just another type of fish, with some peculiarities. However, it was discovered that sharks and other fishes diverged very early in the planet's succession. While it may seem that both sharks and fishes have scales, sharks do not. The scales on the shark are actually modified dental structures, which now provide protection. This is a prime example of convergent evolution. Both sharks and other fish diverged before their common ancestors developed scales. When environmental pressures favored organisms that were more resilient, both groups developed structures similar in appearance and function, albeit by different means. The simplicity of the human solution caused much groaning in the xenobiology field, but nonetheless it became the foremost theory, with considerable evidence already behind it from Earth. Humanity's contribution to the anabology field was the first of many, which will be discussed in later chapters. 3.2. Application of Convergent Evolution Galaxy-Wide Think of your xenobiology class. How many different species of the galaxy are in your class? Probably at least four or five. There are the feathered but flightless Fuqua. Males have bright red feathers, while the females are dull blue. The scale, the Raganas... The humans, with small amount of hair on their bodies, but thicker on the cranium. Females have more on top on the cranium, while males tend to grow more on their face. Or the chitinous vicera. Think of these species. What do they have in common? Before proceeding, write down your thoughts in your notebook. All four species listed, as well as the vast majority of species in the Galactic Republic, share many characteristics. For one... All are upright with appendages not used for day-to-day -day transportation. Humans are bipedal with arms as well as the Fuqua. The Irigonans have a tail they can use to help swim, but otherwise are also bipedal with two grasping appendages. The Vicara are quadrupedal, but once again have two appendages used for holding objects. A strange case, the Ikarians walk on six appendages, but have four for grasping. Another commonality is that all species are either omnivorous or carnivorous. All were predators before true sapiens developed, with ocular senses positioned in front of the cranium for depth perception. Furthermore, all species in the Galactic Republic are social. All live in increasingly large circles of others, beginning with immediate blood relatives that raise them from young, and expanding into social circles that they spend their time. Beyond that, all species naturally form small communities that at some point become towns, then cities, and eventually nations. Among all species, war and tribalism are constants, although the extent to which they are present can vary. For this reason, only a few species, more peaceful than most, 
have ever unified as planets or species, despite nearly all hoping to be able to achieve it. These four examples are by far the most prominent in the galactic community, and before humanity's introduction puzzled even the most learned of xenobiologists. However, they can all be explained by convergent evolution. The first example, one set of appendages for transportation and one for grasping, is now one of the necessary requirements for a species to develop sapience. Tool use is one of the prerequisites for civilization, and if all appendages are used for transportation, tools cannot be utilized effectively. This is linked to the second example, the apparent lack of herbivores that have developed sapience. Having appendages to grasp tools is far more advantageous to a predator than to a herbivore. Herbivores can certainly evolve intelligence, but none have ever developed what can be called sapience. The closest any have ever come are the Faya of the Fuqua homeworld, along with elephants and gorillas of the human homeworld. Carnivores, with their superior steps perception, can accurately throw or jab a spear, which greatly improves the chance of a successful hunt and reproductive success. An herbivore with a tool might be able to fend off predators or reach more food, but would often lack the depth perception to effectively fight off a predator with precision, and thus tool use would not confer any great benefit. The two other examples listed, social circles and war, are also linked. Predators and living groups are often more successful on hunts, and the successful hunts of others can support one who failed a hunt. Furthermore, to work in groups, there must be a form of communication which can lead a language, which leads to abstract thought. A lone predator that only focuses on the next meal does not have the leisure to risk wasting energy on play or innovation. But with social groups comes a terrible price. War. All species war. Some are more prone to it than others, but all have it. Among predators, conflict is inevitable. Competition for resources can cause one group to split into two, or force two groups that could previously coexist to fight for survival. Furthermore, to work in social groups requires individuals to be able to trust one another, something that is generally built over time and stronger with familiarity. However, distrust in outsiders becomes natural, as outsiders do not have the familiarity or time to develop it. The level of this distrust from species to species often varies based on how much competition was present when their species developed on their home planet, but it will always be there. Humanity once again has a term for this. They call it xenophobia, which along with many more of the words such as xenobiology is derived from one of the most ancient cultural languages. As a species level civilization increases, xenophobia becomes more and more of a problem what once was a basic survival mechanism, now has the potential to field armies or fire a nuclear warhead, ending thousands or millions of sapiens in war. Evolution is not perfect. It is an editor, only able to make tiny changes across very long stretches of time. Societal change will always outpace that of evolution, and what once helped the species survive eventually hinders its progress, or even threatens itself with extinction once the species can split the atom. Convergent evolution explains to us why all these things are constants in the galaxy. Whether they be prerequisites for sapiens, 
or a side effect of it. Understanding the links between how life and sapiens evolve is crucial to a xenobiologist. Xenobiologists must be able to determine what compounds will be toxic to one species or helpful to another. Knowing which treatments can be administered to all species can save a life or end one. Understanding convergent evolution will greatly improve your understanding of almost every other principle in this book. By mastering the fundamentals, you will be able to understand and apply the advanced topics found in this textbook. Comprehension Check Number 1. Why is convergent evolution so important to the functioning of galactic society? Number 2. How can convergent evolution be applied to your home world? Number 3. Can the convergent evolution of space-faring species explain how some species are more similar than others? Jacob sat in silence. On the one hand, xenobiology was looking really cool. On the other, it looked like this would require a lot of effort to keep a good grade in. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1423 Story number one. Crime and Punishment, written by Hicks Kem. Captain Jerome sat calm before the assembled council, nodding to each of them in turn as they took their seats. The surrounding chamber was filled to capacity with spectators who had all gathered to witness the proceedings. Captain Jerome, I will first inform you that this court-martial is in regards to the act of unsanctioned execution that occurred on your ship approximately three cycles ago. Do you have any question as to the incident in which I am referring? Jerome leaned forward to speak clearly into the recording device. I know of the incident, and I am prepared to continue. Captain Jerome, you stand accused of executing an individual aboard your ship without granting that individual due process of law. You are also charged with the crime of interspecies execution outside a formal declaration of war. Do you understand these charges? Jerome nodded again. I do, Prime Counselor. This council understands that you have waived your rights to legal advocacy in these proceedings. Is that also correct? It is, Prime Counselor. Very well, Captain. We shall proceed. How do you plead to the charges laid before you? I plead guilty with condition, Prime Counselor. The chamber filled with muttering for several seconds. Most of the assembled expected the captain to plead not guilty and offer a defense. The counselor tapped on the console to his right, and a gentle ringing tone filled the chamber. The chatter died down quickly. Let the record reflect intent to plead guilty upon acceptance and adherence to the conditions as follows. Please, Captain, name your conditions. I wish to explain the full detail of my actions leading to the actions before this council. More muttering filled the room. The council finds these conditions to be acceptable and will now hear your recounting of these events. Jarrell stood from his seat and bowed. Thank you, counselors. I will begin with our entry into star system 4527. Local name, Sol. On or about 1.22.94.4772. My vessel was an observer-class vessel equipped with some of the latest and greatest scanning tech to come from the core worlds. One of the newest scientists, a screese by the name of Lottie had filed a request early on in the mission to make a closer pass through the region of 4527-3, local name Earth. I considered his request and looked at the charts we had. I deemed it to be safe enough for scanning so long as we maintained cloak and kept the satellite body 4527-3.1, Luna, between us and the planet. 
He had requested that we hold position for 10 to 12 rotations. I resumed, to my own fault, that he intended to use the time to comparatively scan and resolution refinement. Others, after all, still in need of additional study. As soon as we were in position behind Luna, Lottie set to work. I attended to other concerns aboard the ship for a rotation also, then returned to inquire as to the progress of his observations. When I entered his lab, I saw something on the table. Heavily restrained, Lottie was speaking to a recorder as he poked at it. One of the counselors spoke up. Captain Jarrell, at this time had any authorizations been made to gather samples of biomatter from the planet? Jarrell shook his head. No, counselor. I'd already familiarized myself with the briefing material on the primary sapient in the region, humans, and had instructed the crew that there would be no interactions with the species unless absolutely necessary. Anyway, Largy was making audio notes, and I didn't think much of it until I heard what he was saying. This specimen is significantly smaller in size and mass than reports from other species would indicate, suggesting that they recalibrate their measuring instrumentation. This concerned me, as there should have been no specimens of any kind of board. As I approached, I heard him continue. Specimen is holding what appears to be the corpse of another predator creature from the planet, though it also appears to be drastically smaller than reports. I am inclined to wonder if previous reports on the size of creature, the so-called death world, are even remotely plausible. If he had brought a specimen on board, and it was holding the corpse of a predator... It was exceedingly dangerous. The Prime Counselor interrupted. When he mentioned a death world, to what is he referring? A death world is a common term for a Class 9 biohazardous planet. Show my knowledge, System 4527.3 is the only recorded case of a Class 9 planet producing a species capable of expanding into stellar space. Thank you for clarifying, Captain Jarrell. Please continue. Jarrell paced as he carried on. I approached the workbench and demanded to see what Lottie was working on. What I saw shook me to my core. He told me very plainly that he had acquired a specimen of the dominant species, as well as the corpse of one of their lesser predators. The translator indicates that it is repeatedly requested a female progenitor and a young canine predator, but it does not seem to possess any of the reported ferocity of its species. I've half a mind to demand a retraction of every published paper on the species. Oh, Captain, this'll make waves in the scientific communities. He seemed so thrilled with himself and so utterly unaware what he had done. I asked how he had acquired the specimen. He told me that he had transported very precisely to a remote region with low population density and had, under the cover of darkness, acquired the specimen. When I pressed him for details, he seemed to think I was asking for a tale of bravado that I might congratulate him over. Well, I entered quietly, using vibration dampeners, put the small canine down with a disruptor, and acquired the smersman as it hibernated under a plant fiber-based insulator. I will admit that my actions were driven by fear at this point. Fear and rage. I remember shaking a bit. I asked him if he had read the briefing reports of the system. He'd said he glanced at them. I asked if he'd read anything about human larvae, and he admitted to me that the reproductive cycle of the humans was outside the scope of his work. Let me explain this to you clearly, I said to him. 
You have just informed me that you stole the human child, shot his dog, and are now attempting to perform experiments on him. He looks surprised. This cannot be a child, my dear Captain. Look, he's holding the corpse of another predator. What child of any species would bring down another predator? I was dumbfounded. That is a teddy bear, I said. It is the mark of a child human that still nests with the adults. I issued a red alert and had our medical staff administer both a sedative and an amnesiac to the human, then transported it back to its habitat. They used dosages that would have been lethal to any of my crew, mind you, but they were still only 80% certain that the drugs would be sufficient to register as a dream state for the human child. As for Lottie, he showed no understanding of the severity of his actions and expressed a desire to find additional specimens to study. At this time, counselors, I determined Lottie to be a clear and present danger, not only to my ship and crew, but also to the galactic conglomeration as a whole. I sentenced him to death, carried out the sentence, ordered an immediate abort of the mission, and relinquished command of my vessel to my first officer. The chamber exploded with noise as Captain Jarrell resumed sitting. After a brief deliberation, the Prime Chancellor rose. Captain Jarrell, this council has considered your testimony with the additional review of the acquired Earth documents regarding the theft of a human larvae and the assault of the familiar canines. We find that your actions were unavoidable, necessary, and within the bounds of reason. We thank you for your efforts to avoid awakening the human homeworld, and we have decided to reject your guilty plea. End of story. Story number two. On the classification of worlds. Written by Archdemon Korinsky. Excerpts from a lecture series on planetary morphology and habitability index by Professor Exnard of the Italian System University. Excerpts provided for free up to the immediate familiar unit use. Please purchase entire series. There are four classifications currently used to designate types of planetary bodies. Garden, rough, death, special. There used to be a greater number but the other classifications have been combined into the special category due to their general rarity and lack of common use. Each planetary body has an alphanumeric designation that allows anyone familiar with the system to understand the vast majority of features that can be found on it. An example of this is X00XXX-XX. The first digit is the overall classification GRD or S. I assume that any student capable of meeting the prerequisites for this class can figure out which means which. The next two numeric digits are from 1 to 10. These indicate the overall danger presented by the local conditions as calculated by the Rexlent Unified Index. The higher the number, the greater the danger present. While I will not go into the math required to use the index, I will say that it is a logarithmic scale. Accepting S classification, GRD planets are sequential. That means that an R01 world is the same thing as a G11 and so on. Yes, you will lose points if you call something a G11 on a test. The next three digits relate to the indigenous life on the planet. First represents the complexity of life. M. Organic micromolecules. S. Single-celled organisms. P. Polycellular organisms. C. Complex multicellular organisms. List truncated for excerpt. The second digit relates to the compositional structure of the indigenous life. C. 
carbon based, S silicate based, H sulfur based. List truncated for excerpt. Third digit is reference to primary atmosphere composition. Much like the Rexland Unified Index, this can be confusing. So please pay attention when studying these designations. R. Primary noble gases, followed by nitrogen. J. Primary iodine, followed by xenon. F. Primary nitrogen, followed by oxygen. List truncated for excerpt. The next set of digits are a reference to the system the planet resides in. These call attention to notable, usually dangerous features of the system. These can be Q. Asteroid fields. W. Magnetic disturbances. D. Orbit irregularities. List truncated for excerpt. Special glass planets use the same format for designation, though the digits can mean something different. The numeric digits represent the ease of terraforming, calculated using the Rexland Terraforming Index. The next digit represents the category of planet. Z. Rocky body. V. Gaseous body. G. Frozen body. List truncated for excerpt. Second digit is primary elemental composition in solid or liquid form, complementing the next digit which remains gaseous composition. F. Iron with vanadium and tungsten. G. Aluminium with chromium and bromine. List truncated for excerpt. System designation digits remain unchanged. T000 is a designation appended to the end of the standard string used for special class planets that are currently undergoing terraforming, representing the percentage of terraforming that had been completed. Upon reaching 100%, the planet designation will be modified to represent its new GRD status. The university and the professor in particular would like to thank the Exo-Explorer Corps of Humanity for their incalculable assistance in providing the first and only hands-on data collection for the Planetary Census and the Registration Commission. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1424. Story number one. Little Dangers, written by three ducks in a man suit. Mice could be fought. Wind could be hidden from. But rain was dangerous. Those were the words Ariel's mother had raised her on. For three years, she had paid attention to them in a way all children do by dutifully remembering them without truly heeding their true warning they give. Only now did she see that the old garden pixie had meant. The raindrops themselves were only a mild threat. Hard and fast, they could stagger a creature Ariel's size with a direct hit. But the overleaves she wore absorbed the worst of the impact. The real problem was the brook. What was usually a trickle of harmless water had turned it to death. Fed by the rain, the river was now over two meters wide, and Ariel was trapped in the center. With the rain turning the use of her wings into the act of suicide, she would have flown the distance in less than a heartbeat. Even then, the distance should have been jumpable. If she was a little closer to the shore, if she hadn't fallen so hard and hurt herself, if the rock wasn't so slick and wet and hammered by waves trying to pull her off of her limited sanctuary. But she had to try. Ariel would die out here at this rate. She would cling to the treacherous surface until her strength gave out, and then she would only pray for the mercy of a quick death. 
ashed against the rocks instead of suffering the slow agony of drowning. Mustering all of her strength, she drew her shaking legs under her, desperately trying to take one full breath without a mouthful of muddied water. She danced. She leapt. Feeling her foot slip on the rock, Ariel knew it was a bad jump. But all the hope was lost, only when an ill-timed wave overcame the rock, robbing her momentum and casting her cruelly into the water. Animal panic assaulted Ariel as she was caught in a current that she had no hope of fighting against. She felt her wings being torn to shreds on the pebbles of the riverbed as she was plunged from the bottom top again and again. Her thrashing limbs failed to make a single bit of difference, and her tiny lungs screamed. Then she felt her body catch on something that was at once soft and unyielding. For a short moment, the pressure of the water battered against her, holding her against the unknown surface like a bug on flypaper. Then she felt it unwrap her body and lift her out of the water. Even with the pouring rain now battering her body, undefended by the overleaf she had lost in the river, the feeling of the air felt miraculous. Ariel coughed and choked to chase the water from her lungs. She both heard and felt some huge object move overhead, blotting out what little light the overcast sky offered and stopping the rain as effectively as a home tree would have. Only then did she look up, still spluttering, to see how she had been saved. It was a human. Ariel's life had been saved by a mountain-sized female human who was keeping the rain off her with a strange black disc on the end of a pole that she held in her other hand. She was wearing glossy garments that deflected the raindrops that made it past the barrier, a wide-brimmed hat, and a big, toothy smile. Her hair was silvery white, and her face was covered in a network of wrinkles. Were all human faces like this? Ariel had never seen one this close before. The human stood to her full height, lifting Ariel into a frightening distance for one whose wings were unusable. Then she walked through the stream, stepping through the running water as if it posed no obstacle to her at all. A different kind of fear was invading Ariel's mind now. She was barely longer than a human's middle finger. If she squeezed her hand, even by accident, she could shatter every bone in the tiny pixie's body. The short wall took them to local human dwelling, a monstrous construction of wood bent and cut into impossibly regular shapes. Was she going to eat me? Noriel shivered in the cold. Then the human spoke as she walked. Oh my, you were in a tricky spot indeed. You're lucky I decided to check up on you. What? I thought this rain might be catching a fairy or two out in the field, but this close to my house, you're uh, a long way from home. Did this human know of her? Of other pixies? Did she know of the home tree? This uh, could be disastrous. Humans were greedy. Humans were selfish. Ariel's mother had told her to never be seen by a human, because if they discovered the home tree, they could destroy it with ease. The human took her into a small room and placed her in an open cupboard. Inside was sugar, water, warm blankets, and a smattering of neatly arranged plants and grass that smelled of home. There was a human device at the back of the room that glowed red and produced warmth. 
The window is open. You can leave whenever you like. But I'd recommend waiting until at least the rain has stopped and your wings have healed properly. Ariel stared in confusion at the kindly smiling face of the old woman looking back at her. I'd better head back out and make sure there are no more tricky spots like you. Stay as long as you like, dear. And with that, she walked out of sight, presumably back into the pouring rain to save others. Ariel could smell other fairies and knew she wasn't the first to use this room. For a moment, she could only sit in the warm glow and think before hunger drove her towards the sugar water. Such kindness. For no return. Maybe. Just maybe. She had humans wrong. End of story. Story number two. The Explorers, written by Shogun CDN. Two hundred years ago, we were alone in the universe, as were the Citrons and the Bellegs and the Hiffins and the dozen other species that gathered in the hall to celebrate the great unification. Ships had come from all over the galaxy to attend the unveiling of the statues to honor the explorers, the ones responsible for bringing orphan species together to stand with each other as a long-lost family. The Citrons arrived in their sleek ships, running on impossibly fast FTL engines that their keen engineering minds had developed. The Bellings were undisputably the finest warriors in the galaxy, their great sturdy frames taking up massive space as they made their way through the crowds. In the distance, the Huffins displayed their biological superiority, each one born in perfection through gene editing. Tall and graceful, they drew attention wherever they went. We also came to pay our respects. We had designed all, incorporating the finest elements of design and function that we could bring to bear. And so, it was with the others, each species contributing to the gallery. Greetings were exchanged in multiple languages, translated by wonderful machines designed by talented shell linguists. The hall itself, was adorned by plants carefully cultivated by the Thass for the occasion. With blooms rising five meters into the air and exploding in a chaotic display of colors, I had come to honor our parents, the explorers who found us by going where the Citrons had said the distances were too great, where the Bellings said the course was too dangerous, they had pushed forward. Where the Hiffins saw only the cold, the explorers braced themselves against the elements and smashed through the ice. It was as though they lived to break boundaries, feeding on resistance, nourished by the violence of space. As we sat in our gravity wells, they sent out their own, searching for each of us. Tens of thousands of explorers died fighting us. Instead of slowing them down, each death seemed to inspire more madmen willing to strap themselves into tubes of metal, breathing stale air and eating staler food. At each new discovery, they helped drag each of us into the unknown. Their insanity was contagious, a virus spreading through the galaxy. But our own fever paled in comparison to the fire that burned in them. Even now, as we found complacency in the community of the species discovered, the explorers are still out there, further than ever from their ancestral home, forever searching, as though sitting still was a death sentence for them. And so it was that we gathered to look upon the statues of each of the humans, men 
and woman who were responsible for the first contacts made with each of our people. The hall extended as far as the eye could see, but it was not filled with statues. Instead, it was mainly empty. But we had built it the size we had for a reason, for we knew that we would need the room for the statues to come. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1425 Dead Man Walking, written by Radius 55 Well, this sure sucks, big ones. Goddamn intel frackers! Oh, the LZ is cold. There is no way they'll see you coming. Slip in, prepared drop zones. It's a milk run. Yeah, a dozen batteries of anti-orbital plasma gun. There's definitely a cold LZ. Tell that to the rest of the squad. Okay, someone's got to save the invasion from the idiots in Intel. Since I'm all that's left, I guess that's going to be me. Better get a beer out of this. Blizzards are going to be looking for survivors soon. At least one of those blasts was meant for me. Thanks for getting in his way, Buckley. I'm really sorry for that business in Utopia. You were asking for it, but damn if I'm not sorry. Now, if the lizards will be looking for me, question is where to go. Gotta find the transmitter. The subspace link in the lieutenant's pod is gone, and I don't have any reading from the secondary in the supply crate. Probably got nailed too. But the briefer mentions the cache on the mountains to the west. Should have a link and transmitter. And if it doesn't, I'm gonna find him and send his rear on a hot drop without a pod. Checking for carrier. No signal. Well, that makes sense. Mountains will block the signal. And it's probably in low power mode anyway. Going to have to get close. That's a 50 kilometer hike and two days before Freak gets here. 50 kilometers. 48 hours with a bunch of reptilian frackers hunting for me. What god did I piss off to draw this short straw? Don't need all this gear. Emergency rations, medkits, some extra ammo, couple grenades, rifle... Pathfinding gear stays here. Ditter with heavy weapons. Nam, I wish I could keep the plasma rifle, but it's a heavy mother. Don't need a spare uniform, but I'll take the socks. Won't be doing any sleeping, so bedrollers aren't too. Okay, now set the proximity self-destruct. That'll give a nasty little surprise. Set it on a delay too. Might be able to get more than the point man. Lizard, whatever. Time to get the frack out of here. Mountains are that way. Alright, just to walk in the park. A walk with purple trees. And lizards that want to kill me. Fracking, great. Hour 30 of my little walk in the park. Frack, I just might make it. 10 kilometers to go. Done at 10k in two hours before. But the patrols are making it a bitch and a half. At least the stims are working. Those things are... <laughs> good. Wish the implant would let me use them outside of combat. Can't think of a few times when being able to stay alert for 40 hours could be nice. But no. That would be a misuse of government property. An extra maintenance load. Potentially addictive. Bastards. Hungry though. Just about time to break out another ration pack. Right about now, I could probably stomach another corned beef and... Crap! Lizard! 30 meters. Damn purple trees just appeared out of nowhere. Did he see me? Frack! He saw me! Psst! Too slow, jerk. 
Hopefully Srens couldn't hear the low-velocity grav pellet. Come on. Come on, damn! That's a lot of hissing. They've found the body, okay? See them now? Look, looks like ten of them. Nine now. Cover's blown. Need to get through before they pin me down. Let's see what one looks like leader. Breathe. Fire. Switch targets. That one has support weapon. Breathe. Fire. Next. It's like they're moving through syrup. Why? Oh. The implant's active. Must have sensed the adrenaline dump. Only thing better than stims is combat drugs. All of that pseudoepinephrine and glucose and oxygenated goop is amazing. Oh. Another one. Breathe. Fire. Looks like they have my position. But I have theirs. Six left. Five. Three. One. And down. Okay. Cut the combat drugs. Oh, I hate that. Feels like everything's moving too fast. But can't overuse it. Burn my brain. Speaking of burns, mother frick has got me. Damn. Creepy. Left forearms black from laser burn or plasma bloom. But don't feel a damn thing. Hooray, adrenaline. Hooray, magic painkillers. But can't leave third degree burn exposed. Bit of biofoam to disinfect and accelerate hearing. And a patch of artificial skin to seal it. Great. Now that I'm not leaving bits of myself behind, it's running time. Cover's blown. Caution, meet wind. Still a long way to go, but might still get there. Gotta try. Depends on if this group's got the message or how often they check in. Either way, gonna need another shot of stims for this. Oh, that's the stuff. Sounds like they know I'm in the area. Heard a few transports. Hell, some of them must have been gunships too. Glad this uniform comes standard with sensor jammers, or one of them would have blasted me into little bits. But I'm leaving a trail of blind man could find, and they have to be following it. Pretty sure that's what's kicking up those bird clouds in the distance. Can't be more than a kilometer back. But that leaves me... here. I knew I was getting higher, but I can't believe I hit the tree line. I'll be wide open out there. One of the frackers steps out of the trees and it's game over, man. But maps say the cache is on the other side of this ridge. And if I get over there before they see me, I'll be home free. So I just have to run really, really fast. Damn it! I did not sign up for this. Left, right, left, right. Watch the hole. Would suck to trip here. Worst sprained ankle of all time, okay? This bush was about halfway. Not much further. Maybe I should have been a cross-country sprinter. Probably breaking a record here. Just another hundred meters and... I'm falling. What the frack? I didn't trip. Oh, damn! It's a lot of blood. And muscle. Oh. Sniper. That cruel, scaly little fracker getting my hopes up. Well, I see you now, standing up. What an amateur. Breathe. Fire. Try hitting me with half your lungs splattered across the mountain. And next time, don't aim for the legs. All right. Can I move? Think. Damn it. Not that. I guess the painkillers can't get around half my thigh missing. But I can stand and hobble. Okay. Need to make it about 80 meters. Just 80 meters and I'm over the top and I might make it. Help further. Little. Not self. Throwing oneself onto a bed of hard, pointy granite is generally disrecommended, even if it is to get out of the view of a bunch of bloodthirsty reptilian aliens, but they are, uh, yep, they're coming out of the trees. Thank you, Sixth Sense. Still leaves me the problem of the last 30 meters. 
They'll see me if I move. They might find me if I wait. And they'll kill me if I fight. But at least, I might take a few of them with me. Let's see. Drop the rock. Won't need it. Rifle is fully loaded. Set velocity to max. No point in quiet and might need the stopping power. Magnificent to mid-range. Zero to three hundred meters. Eight kilometers per hour wind from the north. Now wait for them all to get well out into the open. That's right. Come out where I can see you. Forty of you. Full platoon. All right. Wait until they're at least a hundred meters from the wood line. Good. Now which is the leader? The one staying further back than the rest. Uh, coward? No. It looks like he's talking to something. Definitely the leader. Okay. That one's first. As soon as he passes that rock. Wait. Wait. There. He's down. Crap. Frack. God damn, there are a lot of these lizards. Do they grow on trees or something? No. Wrong color. They aren't purple enough. And that's seven. And I think, yeah. They know where I am. What I wouldn't give for my plasma rifle. Or backup. Or a saturation bombardment from the orbital battleship with all the trimmings. Yeah, that's the stuff. And that makes an even dozen. Damn, they're pouring on a lot of fire. You'd almost think that they were upset about something. Can't imagine why. Quack! Oh! Oh! Frack! Frackity frack frack! Must have been a ricochet or a fragment because if that had been a full slug, my lungs would be gone. But it's bad enough. Sucking chest wound is a nature's way of telling you to slow down and all. Still, don't feel a thing. Thank you, drugs. You're wonderful chemicals, you. Huh. They've stopped firing. Oh, yeah. Probably because I stopped. Think I'm dead or something. Well, yeah, I am, but not yet. Still, as soon as I pop my head out, it's gone. Unless, uh, let's see. How do I do this again? Blah, 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 blah. Safety warning. Yada, 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 yada. Permanent injury. Oh, high probability of fatal side effects. And you think I care about that now because, uh, yeah, that's right. You'd better shut your digital trap. And here we go. Wow, this is, uh, wow, everything is so slow and detailed. Never dumped an implant's entire combat truck reservoir before. It's, uh, odd. Well, time to see if more really is better. Hey, at least I can walk again. Blizzards don't seem to be moving that fast, though. Either someone sprayed them with superglue, or all the time dilation thing gets stronger with dosage. I'm going with option two. But if someone really did dose their scaly hides with glue, I won't complain. Hope it burns like hell. Step. Shoot. Step. Shoot. Hey, lizard dead man walking here. Try and get me. They're moving now. Still slow. Really slow. Couple of shots still going after my old hidey hole. Am I really moving that fast? No clue. More down. Gotten at least half. Lost count. And I think a couple of those might just be good at ducking. Speaking of ducking, maybe I should do some. Pretty sure one of the bastards just burned my gut with a laser or something. Yep, uh, armor stopped most of it. Not all. But who needs a liver anyway? What's that flashing light? Implant notification. Beacon link established. Send message. Uh, yes. The foul fiac. Yes. Must have moved just in range. Uh, implant dump logs to beacon for immediate transmission to fleet. Execute. All right, back to business. Why am I on my knees? 
Oh, me. Left leg's gone. And I was using that too. Well, have some of this. Dad, take my leg and I'll take your head. And you, and you. Missed. How did I miss that? What's wrong with me? Oh, yeah. Beeping. Is that blood loss? Pretty sure the haze is from the blood loss. But never heard of it causing beeping. Maybe the combat drug overdose. Nah, that's the pounding heart. Probably why I can't think straight either. And why did I stop shooting again? I really should be doing that thing. Oh, beeping is no ammunition warning. One shot left. Real shame to die with one bullet. Joking that somewhere. But can't see anything to put it in. Just can't see all that much anyway. Oh, there's one. Shooting at me too. Terrible shot. Couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. And breathe. Huh. Can't breathe. Well, skip that and, uh, shoot. Got him. But maybe he wasn't such a bad shot after all. Doesn't matter. Rifle's empty. And so an arm's not all that important. Really. It's pretty out here. Clear sky. Beautiful mountains. Even the purple trees are nice. Where they always purple? Can't remember. Damned flashing lights. One of those words. Sync complete. What does that mean? Something important, I think. Something I was supposed to do. Or did. Hard to concentrate. Hopefully it means something good. No sergeant. Not sleeping. Just, uh, resting my eyes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1426 Story number one Mother Earth, written by Weirdo5255 Mother Earth? She's a bitch. A hard-ass bitch who tortured every form of life that she brought forth onto her surface. Every life form on her surface had to fight, feed, and feck. After that, she didn't care about what happened, only that they had improved on themselves, perhaps a little. Life on Earth has had to suffer through catastrophes that have on multiple occasions pushed it to the brink of total extinction. Sometimes it looked as if the bitch had gone too far and destroyed the life that she had spawned. But each time, as if despite her, life survived. Asteroid impacts, sulfuric clouds, ice ages, and nearly anything else your mind can conjure up Mother Earth has thrown at the children that she spawned forth. It was only in the last hundred thousand years or so that she decided that she was ready to undertake her greatest challenge yet. The naked apes crawling around on the plains of Africa, she imbued them with just the smallest spark of intelligence. But in the blink of an eye, these naked apes took the challenge like no other life ever had. They were more impatient than her, it seemed discontent with the pace at which evolution might allow them to spread across the surface of the earth. Humanity said feck that and changed the earth to suit them. Tearing into Mother Earth, they wrenched from her surface what they needed to survive. They attacked animals not only to consume them for energy, but using sharpened stone stole their skins and wore them as if they were their own. They dug into the ground and extracted metals, shaping the very dirt to their needs. They went from the plains and the dirt to throwing themselves off of their mother's surface and into the stars in less than ten thousand years. 
They did not thank the Mother Earth. No, humanity slowly bled her dry and fought over the scraps of her corpse before she was even dead. Humanity was meaner than their mother, and with her dying breath, Mother Earth was proud. She was, after all, a twisted, sadistic bitch. Mother Earth did not coddle her children. No, she was a better mother than that. Every form of life she had created learned the single lesson that she repeated over and over. Survival of the fittest. Humanity, leaving behind the burning and decrepit corpse of their mother, went forth into the stars like a plague. The weapons improved versions of rocks that they had once used to murder other animals and themselves on the plains of Africa, raised ready to stake their claim amongst the stars. But, asked the alien representative, the mechanical translator, it wielded, twanging slightly. What threats should we be aware of on the political stage? Asked the human negotiator again. What threat would be present on a political stage? Asked the alien, the thin fronds on its head delicately waving in the air. Some external force to this coalition you represent. Some military threat that we should be prepared for. What groups will not be happy for us joining you if that is what we choose to do? Asked the negotiator. What is a military? Asked the alien. Those who fight and defend their countries, said the human negotiator. His brow furrowed. The alien was silent for a moment. I don't know what you mean. The human negotiator frowned, and opening the computer console in front of him, pulled up an image, an ancient army on a battlefield, weapons raised, and corpses of the enemy soldiers beneath them. The frail alien was again silent, the many small delicate fronds and tendrils on its body retreating towards its skin. Are you all right? asked the human negotiator. But is this? You killed your own kind? Yes. The alien turned a deep green and let out a trilling shriek that the translator did not seem to handle very well. My, asked the alien, now in obvious distress. The human negotiator attempted to figure out what had gone wrong and tried to recover. Limited resources, different ideologies, there is hardly an excuse that has not been used for humanity to go to war. The alien stilled. You have done this other times, it asked in a small voice. There has never been a time in our history where we have not been at war. This is what you call war? Asked the alien, gesturing at the image. This is a battle. Then what is a war? Show me, demanded the alien. Pursing his lips, but unwilling to disregard the alien's request, the human representative slowly started going through images showing humanity through the ages, and calmly explained the art of war that humanity were masters at. The alien was silent, either stunned or catatonic. The negotiator was not sure. After three hours, the human representative finished. I am not sure how to respond. There is nothing like this in the history of any species inside the Alliance. It was the human negotiator's turn to look stunned. No war! No fighting! We might disagree, but we have never resorted to this. Our planets have always had plenty. You come from a death world, do you not? asked the alien. What is a death world? asked the human. A world where life did not cooperate, but rather contested and fought for resources. That is what humanity is. Most of those planets destroyed themselves in time. It was thought until now that death worlds could not sustain complex life. 
My planet has gone through six separate extinction events. After each one, the planet was nearly devoid of life, said the human. I need to talk to my government. I do not have the appropriate response to this. The alien quickly got up and retreated from the negotiation table. The guards outside were escorted back to a ship. The human representative looked down at the table and sighed, turning to the communication console behind him. The image of the human console appeared. They had been watching the proceedings. I don't think it's going to be that difficult to get their mining resources, said the human negotiator. There were a few nervous laughs from the council members. The oldest man sitting at the center couldn't contain himself and burst out laughing. <laughs> this is too easy, he said between bouts of mirth. The negotiator allowed himself a small smile. Indeed, it looks like the same threat to humanity remains. We have nothing to fear in space but ourselves. The polluted and decrepit Earth, devoid of all life but those microbes that could live inside of a toxic waste and nuclear radiation on the surface of the planet, joined the counselors in silent laugh. She had taught her children well. Now, like a plague that would spread out amongst the stars, they had nothing to fear, nothing to stop them. She could rest easy knowing her children were safe. Even if they didn't manage to destroy themselves, the microbes on her surface would survive. They were, after all, her children as well. End of story. Story number two. We Don't Like the Quiet, written by Mercury the Dina. Every civilization wishes to survive has to follow one rule. Stay quiet. Stay in your system, improve your technology, and do everything you can to not attract attention. If you need to expand, then end to so slow, and with specialized FTL engines, so no one can scan for your movements. They will know if you break the rule. No one really knows what they are, but the pattern is very simple. If civilization does something to attract attention, and in a few hours, it is gone. All attempts at defense are proven useless. Even the oldest and mightiest of the known empires don't dare challenge whatever horror lurks in the starless void. Doing so only ever leads to destruction. Civilizations are not hard to sell. Every time a new fledgling species is found, the nearest advanced people give them a small whisper of information. It's risky, and no one is forced to do such a thing. But almost all sapiens do it, since they too were small once. What happened when Gaia started transmitting messages to the Void was quite a standard procedure. A Type 2 intercepted the message, blocked it so no one else could hear it, and then whispered back how the natives should stay quiet and why. Their duty was done, and it was up to the primitives to either listen to the advice or perish. Much to the delight of Gaia's neighbor, the message soon stopped coming. A few parties were made in celebration of successfully saving another species from total extinction. After ten years, the parties ended. After thirty, the primitives were just a small talk for most people. After one hundred, only a few scholars and curious students ever learned about that event. After five hundred, the only evidence that they had helped anyone was old decay servers. Then something happened. There... On the spot where that pale blue dot stood, a new message appeared, and it was big. 
A gigantic signal beamed throughout the void like a sun washing its light over the dark forest. The message might have been on an untranslatable language, but its meaning could be understood by all. Come and get some! Only a few minutes after the message washed over the quiet galaxy, the entire void changed. Gigantic ships which were once hidden and waiting for prey emerged from the edge of black holes and the depths of planets and asteroids. Entire stars and planets which were once thought to be part of common solar systems revealed their true identity as war machines of unimaginable scale. And they were all headed to one place. The entire galaxy watched in awe as the beasts that controlled almost the entire void marched towards their prey. But then they stopped, and one of them imploded in on itself. Then another, then ten thousand more. If the galaxy was in awe before, now they were in sheer disbelief. There, on an interstellar void between Gaia and the rest of the galaxy, a truly gigantic fleet stood against the great monsters. Both sides fought fiercely as the unstoppable force of the void clashed against the seemingly unmovable defense of the Gaians. And there they stood, two titans clashing in the void, while the very fabric of the galaxy bent under the pressure of the battle. By the tenth year of fighting, however, the monsters slowed down. It was a small difference, but it kept growing. By the fifteenth year, the Gaians were destroying two enemy ships for every one they lost. By the 18th year, it was over. Gaia had won. The other civilization stood in stunned silence. Some were too scared to attract the attention of this new predator. Some were quietly making plans to serve their new overlords. Most were just too shocked to react. Another message came through. This time it was written in all sapient language. Sorry, we don't like the quiet. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1427 The Last Nights of Castle Verdant Written by Argus the Cat More stories, huh? Okay. Let me tell you about some humans. Thirty cycles ago, my people and a human nation were at war. Not overly uncommon, I know. Wars just tend to happen sometimes, especially when one side thinks they can win like the humans did. They were a strange bunch for humans. Most human nations or empires aren't really human at all. They're an S-type species, willing and eager to mingle with anyone else they happen to meet in the great galaxy. So they tend to show up as part of councils and federations a lot, and their worlds are usually only about half human and half other. This one, though. They were human, only human, and proud of it. Well, their military figured that they had decent chance of taking some of our mining sites. And yeah, it's a big galaxy and they could have just found some other ones, but these ones were closer. And they came with convenient labor to staff them once conquered. So the Rathans, the humans, they attacked and we fought back. And after eight cycles, we won. Now their government was a big split. After the war turned against them, a lot of their military recruits were just people who wanted to protect their homes and families, who didn't buy the propaganda at all. But some of them, well, they were a bit darker. 
almost an R-class species on their own, you know. And they took most of the power and authority and pushed for more and more extreme measures to fight back, no matter how dishonorable. They still lost. Alienating yourself from your populace at large will never win a war. We all know that. But they still tried. And they fought like hell at the end there. It was at the end, after the end, really, that this war story happens. Their government had a bit of a coup, and the new power surrendered to us. There were conditions, of course, but we were more than happy to accept. Well, our Senate was, anyway. Personally, I was a bit pissed, but I'm just a grunt, and so the war ended. But there were still prisoners on both sides, and that exchange was a long and logistical problematic process. And here's where you get to our hero, our grand protagonist. Niles Vanner was the commander of the outpost Castle Verdant, one of their midline security bases, and they'd mostly been used to contain prisoners of war for the last two to three cycles. He was human, and Ruthan, and had the same proud look in his eyes like he was a king of the universe, but he treated the prisoners fairly, and did his duty with honor. He felt that it was his duty, you know, not all call to victory or glory, just something that needed to be done. Castle Verdant was located on some forgotten rock in the middle of nowhere, but there was one other unit on the planet when the humans surrendered, and it just so happened to be one of the special forces units that the hardline xenophobes had put together. Ruthless commander, no respect for the rules of war, and determined to do as much damage as possible before they died. Surrender, be damned. And that unit knew about Castle Verdant, and they started moving as soon as the orders to stand down came in, intent on killing every single Xeno in the place before they were stopped. Didn't matter that they were prisoners or that the war was over. They just wanted to hurt their enemy. A couple soldiers there weren't so loyal to the old regime, and they got a warning to Vanner before the mobilization and before they were executed. So the base was aware, but they all knew that they weren't prepared. Their shields went up, their guns online, their cybers ready to trigger, but they knew they wouldn't have much of a chance. So Niles, this old man who was willing to die for his nation's honor, he goes down to the prison blocks, alone and he turns off the force fields. You're all supposed to go home now, he told them. The war is over for us. I have no desire to continue it, but it is not over for everyone, and many of my countrymen are on their way here right now. To try and undo the peace we've struck. The prisoners didn't know what to say. Some of them had been captives for cycles, some of them weren't even soldiers. Some probably wanted to run, or thought that Niles was going to hand them over to the executioners. But of course, he wouldn't be a hero if that was the case, would he? His men, his loyal soldiers and dutiful guards started coming into the block, all of them armed, and the prisoners almost rioted, until the first guard handed over his rifle to the alien in front of him, as we are no longer enemies, Niles told them, I see no problem in deputizing you for police action. There was a thick silence in the room then, I imagine. We have enough guns. We do not have enough arms. 
enough minds or eyes. I will not allow our bride to be blackened by these men, he spat the word out, and I will not allow the rules of war to be violated here. And with that, he turned and walked out as his men released and armed the prisoners. We know now that this wasn't enough. The special unit with their cutting-edge gear and suicidal willingness to die, if it meant harming their enemy, overwhelmed them. But what's important is that they overwhelmed them eventually. Castle Verdant held for a fifth of a cycle. The battle did not pause for that entire time. Their techs shredded the AIs of the invaders. Their snipers took dozens of their officers and motivators and their soldiers. Their fighters, human and luck alike, stood and fought to the last breath together. They painted the countrysides and hallways with bullets and beams and blood, even as they shed their own. A fifth of a cycle. The humans called it a seven-week stand. They fell back deeper and deeper into the base, even as their shields fell and their walls crumbled. They refused to give up. Niles, well, he had his offers to surrender, broadcast through their net by the Specs hackers. Every human there knew that they could just open the gates, turn over the alien scum, and be spared. But none of them tried. And when our soldiers showed up to take custody of the prisoners, and their reformed government sent down their platoon to oversee the transfer, well, it might have been the start of the war all over again. The sight of all those bodies, of both our people dead, side by side, did not present a calming scene. I was there when we walked through the carnage. I remember thinking the humans had no honor to slaughter their prisoners like this. And I remember the humans spitting at the thought that our people would have committed this level of violence against simple gods. We were at each other's throats. It wasn't until two of us, myself and one other human, stepped into the inner stronghold in our sweep of the compound that we began to see the truth through our anger. There were three bodies there. Two human and one lulak, all charred to cinders. The only thing left in the room that wasn't flame-scorched furniture or ash was the special operations commander's dog tags and high-end augmentations and the last holdout of the base shield. It was down to a hand span across and its final protected cargo was a simple data pad. One of the bodies, the commander, held what was left of a weapon the other two, the other human and the Lilac, were locked together in a final, charred embrace. The shield fell as we approached, as if it was waiting for us. Forgetting all of our animosity for curiosity, we looked through the datapad together. Notes, stories, final goodbyes, pictures, hundreds of pictures. How people, together, spending their last days in cooperation and trying to make their lives a little more bearable together. Playing games, sharing the base's last supply of alcohol, just watching the sunset with each other in the moments when the fighting was light. Their last stand, written in a million tiny moments between the wall. The final picture at the end was Vanna, and the highest-ranking officer amongst the Lilac, T'Chawa, my counterpart and I had seen them before in the background of so many pictures. They were always there, 
always checking on the men or having a quiet conversation. And here, in their final moments, they had chosen to harken back to an old standby of both our peoples, a selfie, a single frame image of the two of them in this very room, smiling. Niles holding an incendiary grenade and T'Challa holding the pin. They had chosen mutual annihilation of a surrender. You want a war story? Here is a story of the end of the war. The final nail in the coffin between violence our people wrought upon each other. The humans had spent their worst, their darkest and most hateful members in an attempt to keep us fighting for another generation of anger and pride. And those same humans from that same nation spent their greatest hero to stop them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1428 Negotiations written by Glitchkey I walked into the room, avoiding direct eye contact with the alien waiting for me. Its huge eyes just looked like a jet black sclera set in a sack of vaguely damp, wrinkled grey leather. If eyes are a window into a soul, this creepy little guy would have given Satan a run for his money. They just put me on edge somehow. I'd have to make eye contact anyway, but it would wait. I strode out to the meeting table, pulled out the chair and sat down. I shuffled around my bag for a moment before pulling out a small piece of tech, which I set on the table in front of me. Before we begin, I want to be sure of a few things. This device you provided us with, it's 100% effective at understanding and translating languages, correct? The alien across from me nodded. It's nice little allowance that made for comfort learning our body language, but its bulbous head threw the whole gesture off. It made me think of one of those old inflatable toys with a weight on the bottom that would lean too far to one side before bouncing back up. Woobles or something. It didn't really matter. Nearly. We occasionally find a race with one or two concepts that it has trouble with, but that's easily smoothed over. I took a deep breath and waited a moment to compose myself. This whole thing was going to be more trying than not interrupting old Miggins up the street while he went on about whatever racist sentiment was in his head at the moment. One uh, or two. Uh, okay, that's odd. The alien blinked. Eyelids came in from not just the top and bottom, but also the sides. That's just plain creepy. Reminded me of one of those really old movies they threw on the media blacklist pretty much as soon as first contact started. Something in black, whatever it was. I remember seeing it as a kid, and that guy at the beginning had nothing on this alien's eyes. Have you already found something it can't translate? I nodded, then pulled out my communicator and scrolled through a few documents. I really needed to clean this thing out. Can't believe I didn't get around to it before coming to such an important meeting. Imagine the debacle that would result if I opened exactly the wrong thing. Never can know what there might be, honestly. I was thought, yes, sir, mind humoring me for a few minutes. The alien steepled its hands together and leaned forward. That's just plain creepy. I wondered how they learned such context-specific body language. Not that it really mattered, I guess. Not my problem. Certainly. After all, it can take years to accept a race into the Federation. 
Nodding again, I pulled up the document on my communicator, then leaned back my chair as I began. This was going to be more interesting than that time your classmate Jimmy found some old matches somewhere and almost burned the school down by mistake. Excellent, um, this shouldn't take too much time. I mentioned that we found some issues with your device, sir. Allow me to demonstrate. Espionage. The little device on the table beeped, and a red light flashed. Error. No analog found. I sighed. That one had been an accident. We just had the thing sitting in the conference room while we discussed the implications of the visit when it came up. But when something that simple for us to understand came up, we had to try more. Reverse engineering. Again a beep and a flash of red. Error. No analog found. Spycraft. And again with the beep. This was going to get irritating if I didn't speed things up a bit. Too bad we hadn't managed to find a mute option for this feature. Error. No analog found. Overwhelming force. Error. No. Scorched earth. Error. Kamikaze. Error. Blitzkrieg stealth. Mutually assured destruction. Acceptable losses. Pyric victory. Guerrilla warfare. Encirclement. Entrenchment. Siege. The device gave off a series of distressed beeps, punctuated by rapid blinking of the little red light. And almost felt sorry for it. Almost. Too many errors detected. Rebooting. Running self-diagnostics. No discrepancies found. I paused and glanced across the table at the alien before looking down at the translator. This is going to hit harder than a washed-up Hollywood actor with no auditions and less money to hit rock bottom. Xenocide. The chair across from me clattered to the ground as the alien practically fell out of its seat. I didn't blame the poor thing. Of all the aggressive, militaristic words we tried, that was one of the ones that we least expected to translate. I mean, really. Who has a word for the intentional extermination of an entire sapient species when they don't understand fundamental hostile international mechanics like spying? Why do you have a word for... What was all of that just now? I chuckled a bit while motioning for the alien to sit back down. His reaction had been pretty good. Perfectly suitable for one of those hammed-up old dramas where the hero realizes that they've been working with the villain all along. We were confused about that, too, so we took a look at the information you sent as part of the first contact with us. We noticed something interesting. Every single race in your federation is carnivorous. Why is that? The alien seemed smaller somehow as it settled back into the seat. It looked kind of like a balloon slowly losing air. If that balloon was made of moldering grey leather with eyes that made your spinal column decide it wanted a holiday in Fiji. First contact has always been made after sapient races make it to multiple worlds. We've never found a sapient herbivorous race which failed to destroy themselves in resource wars and aggressive actions. We've never found herbivores capable of surviving long enough to leave their own world. I leaned forward in the chair and smiled while finally making direct eye contact with the alien. I think the poor thing shriveled when I did that. Not that I blamed it. Imagine your reaction when you start to put the pieces together and realize that your friendly, upstanding next-door neighbor might actually be the world's most wanted criminal. And the races you have found, while commonly using threat displays, do not waste resources on walls that they cannot easily win. Correct. The alien nodded as it slouched a bit in its chair. It looked kind of like it was trying to hide. Who wouldn't want to hide from the monsters in the closet? 
Wasted resources means decreased likelihood of survival. I shrugged. That was true enough, though rather coldly logical. Dispassionate logic like that has never been our strong suit. Then again, that's why I was in this situation in the first place, so it evens out. Then yet, herbivores constantly waste resources on aggression, on movement, on having more young than will possibly survive. The alien was staring at me. I'm not sure when last time it blinked was. I wondered if those eyes needed some kind of lubrication to keep them from drying out. Probably. They looked a bit less glossy than they did before. And they die for it. That's exactly why we were never encountered space-sparing herbivores. Their inherent aggression is their own demise. I held eye contact. I would have almost sworn the alien was a weird statue right now. Don't know who would commission a statue made of old greasy leather, but I was sure someone with too much money and too little sense would give it a shot. Indeed, now back to the subject at hand. I'll ask you before we continue, what can you offer humans for joining your federation? The alien sputtered as it started moving again. I think it actually looked offended. Maybe it didn't see where this was going. Not that it really mattered, I guess. I mean, it probably mattered about as much as posting a formal complaint to a new corporate policy, which is to say, not at all. We've already sent the offer. You've seen that, I'm sure. I nodded and began to tap an staccato rhythm on the table with my fingers. I never could remember where I learned the stupid tune. I've known it as long as I can remember, and it just moves into my head on occasion and sticks around, like that one couch-surfing friend who doesn't understand the idea of wearing out their welcome. And I'm asking... What else do you have to offer? The alien just shook its head again, staring at the device. I wondered if it was thought that we might have tampered with it, as if we knew how. The little thing was way beyond our current abilities. We had some scientists pry it open and look inside, just to be sure. Nothing. I'm not sure why you're... I raised my hand, cutting him off. Huh. Not sure why that worked. Did they learn that much of our body language? Really creepy. If that's the case, or maybe I just had it on edge, I don't know. I guess it didn't matter. May I have permission to connect my datapad to the ship's computers? The alien glanced away from me for a moment. I assumed it was checking in with his superior somehow. Maybe it was psychic, to an extent. Or maybe they had an implant of some sort. We'd find out, eventually. Yes, if you like. I sighed. I guess that makes things easier for us. I didn't think anyone was going to like what I was about to do. This whole thing felt kind of like one of those hollow vids of an accident where you know what's coming and don't want to keep going, but for some reason you just can't seem to stop and pull yourself away. Computer, show Hiroshima. A screen appeared in the air above my datapad. It started playing back an old, grainy video, shaky, taken by hand from an aircraft in a firefight. Below, you can barely see the city being blotted out by a massive explosion. A cloud of smoke, fire, and debris was rapidly climbing into the sky, billowing, growing, blooming into an eerie and easily recognized mushroom cloud. That's, uh, you're using weapons of that scale on a population center. How recent was this? I shrugged and closed the video. 
The screen on my datapad went back to the document I had up earlier. Gotta love how well they managed to predict this whole thing. I made a mental note to recommend a raise for whoever set up the document for me. Three centuries ago, prior to our invention of spaceflight, part of a much larger conflict, this is a relatively minor example of... Uh, Overwhelming force. Error. No. Uh, shut it, computer. Now, infosheet. Battle of Stalingrad. A series of graphs and diagrams appeared above my datapad. They showed resources, times, maps, battle plans, and death tolls. Images were interspersed throughout, as were annotations on the tactical value of this, the emotional value of that. Prominent amongst them was a single apartment building, including notes on sniping from the roof and support via tunnels. That... What purpose with that? Why? Again, I raised my hand to cut him off before closing the infosheet. Maybe it was both. Nah, couldn't be. The only way that it was both having this guy on edge and our body language is if it somehow had our body language built in. Unsettling thought, but not exactly likely. Because Stalingrad was an advantageous location, and the people who died there were considered acceptable losses, Error, computer, show gallery, General Sherman's march to the sea. A multitude of images appeared over the datapad. Rail lines and roads intentionally broken and destroyed. Farms and fields scoured clean and left to fallow. Buildings and towns razed to the ground. A broken people left to mourn and starve. So much waste. That can't be intentional, can it? I glanced at the images, the wanton destruction that campaign caused, and the very orders that caused it. That kind of thing may be considered morally reprehensible now, even a war crime, but it wasn't always. At that time, the strategy was extolled as one of the reasons the war ended the way it did. It was intentional. The alien stared at me, its reflective black eyes bigger than I'd ever seen them before. Creepy as all hell, that's for sure. I'd rather not deal with these kinds of meetings in the future. Maybe after this, I could negotiate for some kind of retirement. But... why? I tapped my datapad and closed the gallery, then leaned back and tossed my feet up on the table. I already knew how this was going to end, so I might as well relax. Because it rendered the enemy unable to use resources Sherman couldn't keep. Computer assemble and show video grouping. RTS Games. A large grid of videos came up, showing a huge range of scenes, largely battle. The settings varied from open space to deep sea, from early history to the far future. Even battles across space and time could be seen. The translator can't have gotten that right. Those are military tactical simulators, higher level than anything that I have ever seen or heard of. I laughed as I closed out all the videos and turned back to the alien, creepy and unsettling as it might be. I'm pretty sure I was terrifying, the poor thing. Not that I really felt sorry for it. Not at all. No, they aren't. Those are games, toys, for fun. And they're a couple hundred years out of date. From what I've seen, nearly every human capable of coherent speech is capable of tactfully overwhelming your federation. And since we're already here, in space, it's too late for you to say no. So, I'll ask again. What do you have to offer us? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1429 The Free Agent, written by T. Marcus He should have charged more for this job. 
Ethan reflected, pulling his coat tighter about him as his wind whipped down the narrow alleyway. Decrepit facades of warehouses and disused factories rose around him in a gallery of rusted metal and shattered glass, rhymed over with filthy ice and spirals of sickly frost. More than the surroundings, though, the miasma of the place rose up to surround him like a choking cloud. Dark, evil residue left by dark, evil deeds. This was not a nice neighborhood. He reached a numb hand into his coat pocket and rummaged for a bit before withdrawing it with a small hexagonal wooden token. A tracking rune was engraved upon its surface and a small metal pin protruded a few millimeters from the center. He stabbed his thumb with the pin, too cold to feel any pain, and a fat drop of blood slid into the grooves of the rune. The wood drank the blood greedily, and after a second the track arose from his hand and began to float away. He followed it through the maze of alleyways, shuffling over patches of ice and cursing under his breath at the weather, until it paused before a battered door. The rune flashed once, a bright light that seemed to be several colors and none, then fell to the rancid asphalt as a pile of ash rapidly blowing away in the chill wind. Ethan sighed and pulled out a handful of tokens, warding, blessing, awareness, reflexes. Worth half of what he was being paid, he reflected bitterly, but you had to be alive to spend money. The pressure of the miasma clinging to the warehouse receded a bit as he felt the power flow through him, the cold biting just a little less. He straightened up, even warded the ambience of this place was the foulest black. He pulled out a snub-nosed revolver and took a steadying pull from the flask in his pocket before kicking the door in. There were no guards immediately inside, but his enhanced ears could hear the pounding of feet drawn by the noise of his entry. He kept the revolver ready in his left hand while reaching his ash and blood-smudged right into his pocket once more. The first of the men who entered came at him with a tire iron and got a bullet in his forehead for the trouble. But the next had a battered-looking sword-off and a grim face of practiced killer. He took cover behind the doorway before Ethan could get off a shot. He cursed and pricked his finger once more on a fire rune. Hurling a token forward as he spilled blood began to boil and a wooden surface, the guard tried to flee but it blossomed into a raging fireball that flowed over and around the doorway like liquid hell. When it cleared, there was only ash and twisted remnants of a shotgun. Ethan looked at the tokens left in his hand, immediately regretting that he'd used the rune. He only had two more fire, one immobility and one mending, one summoning. He tucked the latter two back into his coat. He wasn't hurt, yet, he thought darkly and he didn't particularly want to see what summoning would cough up if he used it in a place this tainted. He would have brought a pure focus from the city if he had known the packing district had gotten this bad. Too late now. He pushed further into the warehouse, clearing doors and corners. There were no more guards that he could hear, which was either a good sign or a very, very bad one. There were a few traces of recent activity in the decrepit halls, but some of the rooms showed use. One held crates of food, another had cots set up. Five cots. Three more, he mumbled, taking another pull from his flask. At least. 
he moved around the doorway to clear the next room and froze in place. This room had clothes in it, piles and piles of children's clothing, shoes, smashed pairs of glasses, book bags, all discarded, sitting silent and unowned in the cold. His hand began to shake as he reached for his flask again, but it slipped from his fingers as a pang of agony blossomed in his chest. Crap! Crap! Ethan wheezed, clutching his ribs and wincing. The old rune etched there was acting up. Now of all times, Candavage can just leave me alone, huh? He muttered, suddenly, straightening up again with visible effort. He felt beads of sweat on his face despite the cold, but as he made a wipe of his forehead, he found there was something in his hand already. A small, stuffed bear, careworn and missing an eye. He rolled his eyes and tucked the bear into a pocket in his coat. Fuck you, he said to nobody in particular. I don't need any help. Nobody answered because nobody was there. He moved further into the heart of the complex, the miasma growing thick enough to push through his fading ward. He felt a chill in his bones that had nothing to do with the cold, a creeping apathy that told him to lie down and sleep because he was tired. So tired. Ethan chuckled and kept walking, trudging forward through the drifts of old paper and rat droppings. The miasma was going to have to work harder than that now that he had burned so much money getting here. He'd get paid or he wasn't making rent next month, and that's all there was to it. He came to a large central hall and stopped short, the torrent of numbing darkness slapping him in the face like a fetid, wet rag. In the middle of the large space stood three men clustered around a complex-looking apparatus that was anchored over a deep-looking hole in the ground. He then saw it with the chill that the machine had restraints mounted to it. Small ones. Aye, Mr. Carlyle, one of the men said, walking towards Ethan. He was wearing a well-tailored suit and fine shoes, and he spoke with an educated manner. The boss, then. These two guards took up the positions on either side of Ethan, shotguns held ready. The man leered at him, spreading his hands wide. His fingernails were long and pointed. Welcome to my little laboratory, he said. My name is... I don't give a feck, Ethan spat. He snapped his fingers and a photograph appeared in his hands, which he held up to show the others... Kyra Almore, he said. Her parents want her back. Give her to me and I'll leave without any trouble. The man looked at him incredulously, his lips curling into a small, cruel smile. Well, you know, he murmured. Well, Mr. Carlyle, you're welcome to her. She's in there, the man said, gesturing to the hole below the machine. Ethan felt a cold weight settled into his stomach as he walked towards the pit his hands trembling as he leaned over to peer down into the darkness, his augmented eyes still straining to see, and then wishing they had not. Bones, hundreds of small bones filled the bottom of the well. They'd been scoured clean of any flesh, bleached stark white, and tossed down into the darkness. You uh, may have some trouble picking it out, the man said amusedly. If I am being honest, I don't usually ask for names, so she may not even... Ethan spun around, with his face contorted in rage, his arm whipping out through blood-smeared fire runes at the man. The gods on either side screamed and vanished instantly into a roiling inferno, but the man in the suit simply laughed and walked out of the fire. His suit was clean and unmarred, his dark hair 
immaculate. Ethan! Ethan spat. The pain in his chest was building again, making it hard to concentrate. He stumbled and fell to one knee, shaking his head to try and clear it. Human, the demon replied, grinning wide to show his pointed teeth. Don't worry, though. I'm not going to eat you. I've been trying to eat healthy, and you definitely don't count. He snapped his fingers, and Ethan was pulled upright as though on puppet strings, his back arching in agony as a demon's magic shredded his wards. I'll make this a little bit unpleasant, though, since now I'll have to find new helpers. The demon paused, frowning. Ethan's vision was blurry, his breath coming to shallow gasps as his chest burned in agony. White-hot energy scoured his bones where the old runes carved across them, and he burned, burned, burned. For the ruined was righteous, and he was not. You have something filthy, Anya, the demon snarled, drawing back. Time to end this. He swiped a taloned hand forward as send a swirl of shaped edged energy towards his prisoner. But as he hit, the weave of dark blades puffed into foul smoke. Ethan was sent sliding back along the concrete, coughing and writhing as whips of light leaked from him. With an effort... Ethan levered himself upright and stood shakily to glare at the demon with eyes that had turned a clear gold. Paladin, the demon whispered, his face contorted into hatred, so above sends the dogs for me, that last. He looked at Ethan and his lips split into a sneer, taking in the man's unsteady stance and labored breathing. But you're not a very good one, are you? They must have poor opinion of me if they think that I can be felled by a sad remnant like you. Oh... I'm lapsed, Ethan said viciously, a globule of blood leaking from his lips. I don't stand a goddamn chance. He withdrew his hand from his pocket, holding out the battered stuffed bear and a blood-smeared summoning rune. Then he threw them into the pit. The demon's eyes widened, but Ethan had already tossed immobilization at him. The wooden token lashed the demon to the cold stone just as the blood-smeared bear fell to the bottom of the pit. It rested for a long moment on the bones of a hundred innocent martyrs. The cracking howl of the summoning drove them both to the ground, the sheer pressure almost too much for Ethan to bear as they writhed once more against the concrete, when he was finally able to raise his head, squinting against the blinding light. Six wings appeared, with feathers of gold. Long slender arms held a radiant spear against the demon's throat. Seraph, Ethan thought. A touch of the old wonder coining around his heart. Brother, the demon croaked, struggling to free himself from Ethan's rune. Please, I am. The seraph did not reply, but shone brighter. Ethan ducked his head, swearing, his eyes aching from the brief glimpse. The demon's pleas turned into screams, then shrieks, then silence. When Ethan raised his head once more, he was alone in the warehouse. A blackened smear stained the concrete where the demon had been, and no trace remained of his machine. On the lip of the stone wall sat a stuffed bear, whole and pristine. Ethan pulled himself upright once more, feeling the pain in his joints as he came to his feet. He stood with his eyes closed for a long moment, and in the periphery of his hearing there were whispers, a choir of voices clustering around him with insistent fervor. He opened his eyes and sighed, casting his gaze upward. Somewhere in the middle of all of that, he'd been sobered up. He had a splitting headache. Fuck you, 
he said quietly, staggering out of the warehouse. I work alone. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers. I'd just like to give a quick thanks to the T5 channel members and patrons. Alithia, Parky, Fudicure, Meridian117, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Angry Marine, Lord Azrakal, and White Van 420 